When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. I'm Jared Halverson. Welcome back to Unshaken. And welcome to Illinois. Feels like just a week ago we were in Missouri. And I guess we were as we studied section 121.23, those Liberty Jail revelations. But Missouri is now behind us, and in some ways, good riddance. Those were the hardest years for those early members of the church. The extermination order from Governor Boggs, which pushed them eastward into Illinois. Uh, amazing stories of the saints suffering. From, as Joseph is languishing in Liberty Jail, you have Emma gathering her children around her, wearing the Joseph Smith translation. Uh, they had made some special uh, kind of an apron underclothing, so to speak, that had these big pockets where she put the manuscript pages of the Joseph Smith translation so that she could carry them with her as she fled Missouri without any of the mobbers knowing what she was taking with her. Her children wrapped in, in what few blankets she had remaining. There were even some former Latter-day Saints that stole her bedding and blankets there in the middle of the winter as they fled. Horrible, horrible times in their rearview mirror. And not yet knowing what lay ahead on the eastern side of the Mississippi. Thankfully for the Saints, the good people of Quincy, Illinois, opened their homes and their hearts to what would have been one of the greatest refugee crises of the mid-19th century. Incredible to think of how many thousands and thousands of Latter-day Saints just needed shelter to get them through that winter and get them back on their feet. Soon enough, they were able to purchase land, well, land that nobody else wanted. It was a swamp uh, at a bend of the Mississippi. They had, it had been called Commerce. And Commerce, Illinois, it's kind of like Greenland. Greenland isn't very green. I don't know if that was just a marketing trick in hopes that people would, would go and settle. Similar when it comes to Commerce, Illinois. There was no commerce taking place unless you're talking about the commerce of, of mosquitoes and anyone foolish enough to go wander through the swamp there. But because no one wanted it and prices were low, it's a good combination. The saints were able to purchase this land and begin to settle it, to drain a swamp and begin to build a city that they would name Nauvoo. I love, by the way, this shift in names from Commerce to Nauvoo. Yeah, it's one thing to be drawn by the promise of getting rich, of commerce, but commercialism and consumerism was not on the saints' mind when they settled there. It was to build a, a refuge, a place of gathering where they could pick up where they left off in building temples to the Lord. And so they named it Nauvoo, a, a Hebrew word from the passage about how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who publish peace. And how beautiful, that beautiful word is where we get Nauvoo. To think of beautiful Nauvoo then as a place, it's interesting because in many ways it was a temporary holding ground and nothing more. If you think, like I said, good riddance to Missouri, well not entirely. The problem was the saints were supposed to be there. Zion, remember we saw in an earlier revelation, Zion shall not be moved even though my people may be scattered. Well they had been scattered out of the state, but but the pin in the map was not going to go anywhere. In a way, the saints were still tied to independence, and we have forever remained so ever since. But to have this place in Nauvoo then, it, it reminds me of what we studied in section 51, 
when the saints were first told to go to Ohio as a gathering place. And we're told from the get-go, you're only going to be here for a little season. This is not your permanent stopping ground. And yet they were told in the same revelation, but act on the land as for years, and it will turn to thy good. That, in a nutshell, is what the Nauvoo period of church history was going to be. Knowing that it was not meant to be permanent, and yet they acted on the land as for years, as if they'd lived there until the millennium, or at least until they were able to go back to Jackson County, Missouri. And they built a, a, a beautiful city. They built an incredible temple. They, built the, they began a, a university. They, Nauvoo at the time was, was rivaled by Chicago in terms of the biggest population center in the state. And it became a beautiful place because of the feet of those who were there publishing peace. As we study section 124 today, which by a number of verses is the longest revelation we have in the Doctrine and Covenants. And, and surprisingly, it's, it's not as packed with doctrine as the other large revelations we've seen, section 76 and 84 and 88. 124 has a, has a lot more of the, oh, we, we've got to roll up our sleeves and get at it. And it's all hands on deck as we're trying to build this city on the, on the banks of the Mississippi. And so here's assignments for you and responsibilities for you and stewardships for you. And, and there's a lot of instruction and counsel given to individual people. If you want a great book, Susan Easton Black wrote one called Who's Who in the Doctrine and Covenants. And as you read section 128, 124, with all kinds of names of individual Latter-day Saints, Sister Black's book is a, is a great resource to understand a little bit more about each one of them. We're going to try to take a bit more of a bird's eye view and see less concerned about the specific people who receive these, uh, these instructions and more how do they relate to us as we are trying to have beautiful feet upon beautiful mountains, as we're trying to publish peace and prepare the earth for the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is what they were trying to do as well. As close as we can get to that day, the closer we'll get to being able to build the new Jerusalem back in the Missouri that will finally be open to, to welcome us. Well, we're still waiting for that day, but I pray that we can learn some things from section 124 as we prepare ourselves and the world around us for that glorious day. We still have work to be done and still buildings to build, and particularly in section 124, that is going to be two houses, a house of the Lord and a house for people who are seeking him called the Nauvoo House. If you read the Bible dictionary entry on temples, it speaks of the temples being the most holy place on earth because God can manifest himself there to his children. But second only to the temple in terms of holiness is our home. And so to think today about the Nauvoo Temple and the Nauvoo House, somewhere between there we find the church as it's trying to develop this and to see the church reaching into the home and trying to turn the people who live there toward the temple, from our house to God's house, as it nurtures our faith and reliance upon the Lord. As, as we study section 124, this, this beautiful revelation, I hope we'll be able to see our own homes as a Nauvoo house of sorts, and one that is hopefully preparing those of us who live here to set our sights on the temple of the Lord. Welcome, my friends, to Nauvoo the Beautiful. In verse 1, Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant Joseph Smith, I am well pleased with your offering and acknowledgments which you have made. For unto this end have I raised you up, that I might show forth my wisdom through the weak things of the earth. 
Now, if you read enough into the end of that verse, that is, oh, in some ways it's building Joseph up, but also putting him in his place. Do you see how he said it? You know, Joseph, I, blessed art thou. I'm pleased, with, well pleased with what you've done. And you're doing just what I've asked you to do. I raised you up just for this purpose. And that purpose included showing my wisdom through the weak things of the world. Yes, Joseph, that describes you to a T. In some ways, it's as if the Lord was saying uh, to, the, to, the, to the adversary, I can beat you with one hand tied behind my back. In fact, I could beat you with the weak things of the world. I'll take a 14-year-old uneducated farm boy and restore the kingdom of God. How's that for you? And, and I just love that the Lord's, his power in showing forth wisdom through weak things. Joseph, I need someone that I can work with, not because of his strength, but rather despite his weakness. I need someone humble enough to recognize that weakness, to recognize the absence of flesh on the arm, so that you trust in the arm of God instead. I will work through you. And thankfully, Joseph, you'll know me well enough and know yourself well enough not to get in the way. I think that's part of what he means at the beginning of that verse. Interesting what the Lord is pleased with. Your offering, that makes more sense. All that Joseph has been doing for the last, oh, what, 21 years by now, uh, since the first vision, the last 11 years since the church was organized officially, so many offerings of his time and talent and, and his suffering and sweat, blood, sweat, and tears, it's all gone into it, literally. But also, not just his offerings, but his acknowledgments. That's one I think is worth pausing on and considering for ourselves. What kind of acknowledgments do I give to the Lord? In Joseph's case, I wonder if it was part of what I just said at the end of the verse. His own acknowledgment of his weakness compared to the wisdom and strength of God. To acknowledge that every good thing comes of God. To acknowledge his omniscience and his omnipotence. His, his divine attributes, his will, his word, his law, his blessings and commandments, his timing, all of these things Joseph is coming to acknowledge. As we saw last week, oh God, where art thou? He acknowledged God through those dark days of Missouri. He acknowledged God in, in the persecution that he suffered and the testimony that he held firm to. I just wonder for us, it's one thing to be giving God our offerings, but are we acknowledging him in the offerings that we give? Do we recognize the who behind every what that we give him? In verse 2, your prayers are acceptable before me, and in answer to them I say unto you, that you are now called immediately to make a solemn proclamation of my gospel. And of this stake, which I have planted to be a cornerstone of Zion, which shall be polished with the refinement which is after the similitude of a palace. A stake which is planted, a cornerstone of Zion. Zion would have been a word that would have hurt a little every time they heard it, since it was across the river and then across the state of Missouri. So far away from from where they wanted and hoped and prayed to be. In some ways, you can read section 121-23 as, as Joseph grappling with his situation and the saints' situation. Specifically, how do we build Zion when we are cut off from Zion? How do we build a new Jerusalem in Missouri when we are no longer welcome in the state? I mean, we're caught between an extermination order on the one hand 
and an exaltation order on the other. What are we going to do? And in some ways, we'll see later today in section 124, the Lord helping Joseph make, kind of come to terms with all of that. But to see this desire on his part to build Zion and to be reassured, you're still building it right here in Nauvoo, a stake of Zion, a cornerstone of Zion. Remember, Kirtland was a stake as well, a stake of Zion. And Zion is going to eventually fill the earth. So even though you're not at the center place yet, you'll set the center pole first and then start stretching out cords and, and sinking in stakes. I guess in our day, we're going to have to do the reverse. And we are setting up stakes all around the world and lengthening those cords and strengthening those stakes in anticipation of the day when we finally are able to raise that center pole, the center stake in Independence, Missouri. In the meantime, Zion must be built everywhere. So what's the, what's the call to action in verse 2? Make a solemn proclamation. This city, Nauvoo, the beautiful, must become more beautiful. It must be polished with the refinement like a palace. Because who's to live here? Kings and queens. Priests and priestesses. That's what the Nauvoo temple is meant to create out of each saint that was there. If you remember last week, the end of section 121, we have our scepters of righteousness and truth. Section 25, we have our crowns of righteousness. Our dominion is an everlasting dominion. God is trying to crown each of us. And so this cornerstone of Zion needs to look like a palace worthy of the sons and daughters of the king of kings. Now, there's other kings and queens that will be involved in this as well. Verse 3, this proclamation shall be made to all the kings of the world, to the four corners thereof, to the honorable president-elect. I get a kick out of that one. The election of 1840 had just taken place, and William Henry Harrison had unseated uh, the incumbent, Martin Van Buren, and to the saints, it would have been good riddance to Martin Van Buren, right? So any, anybody compared to him would have been uh, an honorable president-elect. Also, the high-minded governors of the nation in which you live and to all the nations of the earth scattered abroad. This proclamation really is meant to go everywhere. Verse 4, let it be written in the spirit of meekness and by the power of the Holy Ghost, which shall be in you at the time of the writing of the same. Now, that's a tricky balance to strike. We're proving some contraries there, too. On the one hand, to speak with power, but at the same time, to speak with meekness. Now, how do we balance the two? I think he gave us the answer right there. It's through the Holy Ghost. If you have the Spirit with you as you are writing, or as you're speaking, or as you're teaching. Remember that phrase, through the peace and power of the Holy Ghost? Well, there's meekness and strength all combined into one. And through the power of the Holy Ghost, we can have that, that confidence, the confidence waxing strong in the presence of God, and in the presence of kings and presidents and governors and anyone else, but also a meekness because we know where that power lies. Meekness is not weakness. And as we studied last week, that real power comes through the powers of heaven, channeled through the principles of righteousness. If you are worthy of the Spirit, as you write, as you speak, then your meekness will not be perceived by the, your audience as weakness. It will be perceived as power, but not an unrighteous one. The, 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 you'll, strike, you'll find the Goldilocks zone perfectly. 
Now verse 5, For it shall be given you by the Holy Ghost to know my will concerning those kings and authorities, even what shall befall them in a time to come. So part of this proclamation is what you kings and presidents and governors can do to help build Zion. But also it's to promise you the blessings of God so that we can offer to you an understanding into the things that will befall you in a time to come. That's what prophets do. They, they wake up the world for the conflict of justice. They pronounce the signs of the times. They are watchmen on the tower and they see things afar off and they raise a warning voice. And the saints here are being called upon by God to raise that voice. Verse 6, Behold, I am about to call upon them to give heed to the light and glory of Zion. For the set time has come to favor her. All these years of, of putting her under your heel need to be in the past. It's time to favor her. The state of Illinois already has. By signing the, the Nauvoo Charter, which gave Joseph Smith and the saints such autonomy, and power to be able to, to take care of themselves, protect themselves, defend themselves. Uh, it's amazing to see the, the goodness at the time. It would change later by the time we get to the martyrdom. But the state of Illinois was favoring the saints, and the saints were very grateful for it. Now verse 7, Call ye therefore upon them with loud proclamation, and with your testimony, fearing them not, for they are as grass, and all their glory is the flower thereof which soon falleth, that they may be left also without excuse. Now imagine being a backwoods farmer like Joseph Smith. Even the more educated among the Latter-day Saints weren't exactly the type of people that, that hung out, that hobnobbed with kings and governors and presidents and so on. And here they're being asked to write them a proclamation, inviting them to help participate in the building up of Zion. Talk about an intimidating assignment. And yet the Lord's reassurance in verse 7 on the one hand, they're just grass. It's a phrase that's used in the Old Testament because in the Middle East, when there isn't much rain, the grass springs up whenever there is, but then quickly fades and dies whenever there isn't. If you think about presidents of the United States, again, Van Buren, you were gone. Our cause is just, but you could do nothing for us. Well, they didn't turn out uh, like you had hoped even when you were trying to hold on to the votership in, in Missouri. President Harrison, the honorable president-elect, his presidency would be so short-lived because he, was, he would die soon thereafter. Just like grass, kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but the kingdom of God will remain eternally. So don't worry about them. Their flower, all their pomp and show will fade and fail but what you're trying to accomplish will last eternally. So bear your testimony and fear them not. My wife shared an experience with me about her mission that I'll never forget. She said she and her companion were on the back of a bus and it pulled over to pick up some new passengers and two Latter-day Saint missionaries were among that group. Now they didn't see that there were sister missionaries in the back of the bus already. They didn't look up to notice because they weren't looking up much at all. These two elders got, kind of trudged their way up the stairs of the bus and, and quietly took a seat near the front with heads down. And my wife said as she looked at them, she could see dejection and disappointment on their faces. But worse than that, she, could, she sensed their fear, their lack of understanding who they really were. 
There was no sense of coming up onto this bus and looking around at potential investigators in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only reason you haven't found the truth is because you know not where to find it, and here I am to give it to you. There was none of that confidence. There was none of that, that self-knowledge of an understanding of, of who I am and whose I am, and that I represent him, the Lord. Here, these saints are called upon to give a loud proclamation. No, no timidity there. To do it fearing them not. There's no hesitance. I just think of those poor missionaries that just didn't know who they were. And, and, and didn't have the confidence to give a loud proclamation with their testimony of the things they knew to be true. That's where we can do such a better job of being bold without being overbearing, right? To have be strong, but also meek at the same time, but to let people know what we have to offer them. In verse 8, that I may visit them in the day of visitation, when I shall unveil the face of my covering to appoint the portion of the oppressor among hypocrites, where there is gnashing of teeth, if they reject my servants and my testimony, which I have revealed unto them. God is serious about this. He is offering a witness of his word, a testimony of truth, and we will be responsible for that, how we respond to it. As President Benson used to say, the Book of Mormon is not on trial. We are. Well, I remember a talk once that Elder Maxwell gave. At the end, it blew me away. He Very boldly, he said, I know that this message comes from God, and I know that I will be held responsible, accountable, for, for sharing it with you. But now that I have that accountability shifts to you and you will be held responsible for what you do with the words that I've given you. That is what this, this shift of accountability is happening there in verse 7 and 8. Verse 9, again, I will visit and soften their hearts, many of them for your good, that you may find grace in their eyes, that they may come to the light of truth and the Gentiles to the exaltation or lifting up of Zion. It is amazing to see hearts soften. Back in section 112, that message to Thomas B. Marsh and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the doors that are supposed to open, that we need to open the doors of the kingdom so the nations can come in. But so much of that also depends on them opening the doors of their nations so that the fullness of the gospel can enter in. Pray for the softening of their hearts. Pray that, they might find, that we might find grace in their eyes to think about all the work that a President Monson and then later a President Nelson did in Eastern Europe to allow the gospel to penetrate the Iron Curtain. To see what President Nelson has done in China, where years ago he learned Mandarin Chinese at the invitation of President Kimball. And yes, medicine was able to enter through those doors as he was able to train Chinese doctors on, on heart surgeries. But to think about the doors that, will yet, that are opening and will yet open, as, as hearts are softened to people that are trying to, to open doors for the kingdom of God. In verse 10, For the day of my visitation cometh speedily, in an hour when ye think not of, and where shall be the safety of my people, and refuge for them who shall be left of them? You understand what time it is? The day of the Lord draweth nigh. The, the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants, that preface with its thesis statement, Prepare ye, prepare ye, for the coming of the Lord is nigh. We need, that's our purpose, to prepare the earth for the second coming. And where will our safety be? Where will our refuge be? 
it will be in Zion. Remember section 45 is the only place on the earth that is that we are not at war with our neighbors, that it will be a refuge from the storm. Specifically, within Zion, her temples will be that place of greatest safety. That is the sanctuary to which we run when we are in need of help. So with those words in verse 10 of safety and refuge, we're already getting a hint toward the Nauvoo temple that needs to be built. Now, they, the saints are going to need all hands on deck and as much help as they can possibly get. Uh, the building of the Kirtland Temple came at incredible sacrifice. And they were never able to get anything really off the ground, above the ground, in Independence or in Far West or in Adamondiamon, other temple sites that had been designated. So verse 11, Awake, O kings of the earth, come ye, O come ye, with your gold and your silver to the help of my people, to the house of the daughters of Zion. We have spiritual blessings to offer. You have temporal blessings to bring. And if you can come and help us with whatever you can offer, we will offer you so much more than ever, whatever sacrifice you made. This actually reminds me of the, the earliest Exodus. The Lord told them, I will soften the hearts, speaking of what we saw back in verse 9, I will soften the hearts of your taskmasters, of, your, of your, the people of Egypt, Ask them for their gold and silver. Ask them. I mean, you for 400 years you have been their slaves. This will be a drop in the bucket compared to what they truly owe you. And compared to all that the saints have, have lost in Missouri, those re redress petitions we studied last week, uh, whatever gold and silver the kings of the earth can bring will be, will be well deserved by saints who have suffered and lost so much. But it's not for them, it's for all of us. It's to build up the kingdom of God and to build up her temples. That's what the riches of Egypt were intended for. St. Augustine actually coined a phrase, he talked about plundering the riches of Egypt. And he used that phrase to describe getting as the best secular education you could. That's plundering the riches of Egypt. And then deciding, what am I going to do with it to help build up the kingdom of God? That was a phrase that carried me through my graduate years. I'm here to plunder the riches of Egypt. But then the choice, because they, those riches originally were intended to build tabernacle implements. The, the menorah, the candle stand, the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the Ark of Incense, there's, or the altar of incense. There's so many things that needed to go into the temple. And if Solomon's going to build with cedar and gold for the temple, well, Moses is going to still build with the best possible materials. And so they plundered the riches of Egypt. Now, sadly, before those riches were melted down to become tabernacle implements, they were melted down to become a golden calf. And that is a choice that we all have to make, whether it's our education or whether it's worldly wealth, whatever Egyptian riches we've received, will we use them to build God's kingdom or our own? Zion or Babylon, the choice is ours. But for these kings and queens, to bring their gold and silver. Help the daughters of Zion. Assist in bringing forth the kingdom of God. Verse 12, again, verily I say unto you, let my servant Robert B. Thompson help you to write this proclamation, for I am well pleased with him, and that he should be with you. Let him therefore hearken to your counsel, and I will bless him with a multiplicity of blessings. Let him be faithful and true in all things from henceforth, and he shall be great in mine eyes. But let him remember, his stewardship will I require at his hands. 
That's the first of many instances we'll see today of an individual Latter-day Saint being given a specific stewardship with blessings and warnings attached because of accountability. Now, specifically with Robert Thompson, sadly, he didn't live to be able to perform this stewardship. The, in fact, Joseph Smith himself didn't live to see it done. This proclamation was never written during his lifetime. They were so busy in trying to build up. You ever been in that situation? I used to joke my first year in Tennessee that I had so many fires to put out, I didn't even have time to hire other firemen. Uh, it, it, you just There's so many things going on, and you just can't get to everything. And sadly, during Joseph Smith's lifetime, uh, I, I would say to, with no fault of their own, the saints weren't able to write this proclamation. They were trying to build up Nauvoo. They were trying to build the temple specifically. Although by 1845, Joseph is now gone. Brigham Young and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles is leaving the church. But on April 6th, important day, of 1845, the church's 15-year anniversary, the Quorum of the Twelve sends a proclamation to the world regarding the kinds of things the Lord is asking of them here. It ended up being published as a 16-page pamphlet. Uh, you can read the whole thing online. It's fascinating. And to see the power of their testimony over and over and over near the end of, the, of this pamphlet, they talk about the things that they know and they end every paragraph with, and we know it. It is so bold. It is fearless in what it is proclaiming to the world. Fearless in its testimony of truth. And just as required here, it calls upon the kings and the presidents and the governors of the, of the nation and the world to come and help roll forth the kingdom of God. It's like Daniel's dream. Which side of the stone do you want to be on? You who are in charge of the kingdoms of the world, you're the one setting up this statue in the valley. It's about to get toppled as this stone rolls forth and fills the earth. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. No wonder Nauvoo needs to become a palace. No wonder this cornerstone of Zion together with other cornerstones on this foundation of apostles and prophets, building up to the capstone itself, the new Jerusalem needs to be a, a palace for the king of kings to come. So all the world, come and help. Quit working on the statue down below. Get on the other side of the rock and help to push it forward. The saints initially planned to print 100,000 copies of this pamphlet and to send it free across the nation, so that every governor and every legislature and the, and the president of the United States and the clergymen across the country would be able to have a copy of their own. This was bold, and yet in many ways no more bold than a proclamation to the world on the family given by prophets, seers, and revelators in 1995, or more recently a proclamation to the world about the coming forth of the kingdom of God in the bicentennial year of the first vision where the heavens opened and God began his work anew. We are a part of this dispensation of the fullness of times. And as I reread that, that proclamation from 1845, it stirred within me this desire to join with those early apostles. It was written by Parley P. Pratt under power of the Holy Ghost. Believe me, there was boldness there. There was testimony there. In Parley P. Pratt, there is never timidity and there is never any fear. 
and for us to become one of Parley's junior companions, to join the apostles then or now in doing God's work is exactly what God is calling upon each of us to do. As he said to Robert B. Thompson, who didn't live to fulfill this mission, the same applies to each of us as we live to fulfill it in our own day. Let us remember that our stewardship will God require at our hands. Now from there, we start to see the Lord reach out to other individual Latter-day Saints there in Nauvoo with, with purposes for them to fulfill, jobs that he had needed them to accomplish. Verse 15, we start with Hiram Smith, uh, such an incredible leader of the church, Joseph's older brother. Again, verily I say unto you, blessed is my servant Hiram Smith, for I the Lord love him because of the integrity of his heart, and because he loveth that which is right before me, saith the Lord. That is such a beautiful message to Hiram. I always laugh when I think of John 11, when Mary and Martha send this messenger to Jesus to tell him that Lazarus is sick, our brother, please come and help him. But the way they say it, they say, him whom thou lovest is sick. And what I laugh about that is, that describes everybody. Picture this servant going, who's the message from? Oh, someone that you love. And Jesus kind of, um, that doesn't lower, that doesn't narrow down the list at all. Or like when, when John the Beloved refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which again could have been claimed by any of the Lord's disciples. He loves us all. But what I love about section 124 verse 15, yes, the Lord loves Hiram just like he loves all the rest of us. But there's a reason behind God's love of Hiram that to me speaks to the goodness of his soul. It's his integrity. It's his heart. He loves what's right. In other words, this is what the, a phrase that is in the Old Testament regarding a young David, that his heart is like mine, that he has a heart like the heart of God. God loves righteousness. And so does Hiram Smith. He loves what is right before God. His integrity is bone deep. There's no guile in him, no, no hypocrisy. Hiram was as good as they come, and the Lord knew it, and the Lord loved him for it. In 16, you then swing the pendulum to the opposite extreme, sadly. Someone that is not mentioned as one full of integrity. And as time would tell, he proved that he was, he was not even worthy of the trust that Joseph and others had given him. Verse 16, again, let my servant John C. Bennett help you in your labor in sending my word to the kings and people of the earth and stand by you, even you, my servant Joseph Smith, in the hour of affliction. And his reward shall not fail if he receive counsel. Now that if is important. We see it two more times in 17. For his love he shall be great, for he shall be mine, if he do this, saith the Lord. I have seen the work which he hath done, which I accept, if he continue, and will crown him with blessings and great glory. See, the problem with John C. Bennett, he was mayor of Nauvoo for a time. He was, he, we talked about this before when Joseph went to Salem, Massachusetts, and his weakness was simultaneously his strength that what allowed him to connect with people, that's the strength side of things, his, his trust of people, his always giving others the benefit of the doubt, was also, there's the strength side, there's the, the heads, the tails of that coin, 
is he sometimes placed his trust in people who truly did not deserve it. And John C. Bennett proved to be one of those. He did not live up to the ifs of 16 and 17. And again, I wonder if the Lord is hinting at that already. It reminds me of what we studied earlier in section 39 and 41 about James Covell, whose heart is right. Well, well, right now. I mean, at this moment and two chapters later. Well, his heart was right uh, uh, at that time. Similarly with John C. Bennett, there are certain people whose discipleship, whose commitment to the Lord is iffy at best. And I hope that doesn't apply to you or to me, that we can be counted on, that our heart is in the right place and centered on the right things. There's Hiram side by side compared to an iffy commitment in John C. Bennett. Even knowing the end from the beginning, he gave Bennett an opportunity like he gave Judas an opportunity, like he gives any of us an opportunity to put us in the best possible situation to overcome our ifs and to live into the promised blessings that come to us on conditions of our repentance or our faithfulness. John C. Bennett sadly did not live into his. He could have done so much. That's why he was given opportunity. He was a man of leadership. He was a man of charisma in both the positive and negative senses of that term. He could have helped send the word forth to the kings of the earth, but he wasn't good at receiving counsel. Pride was part of his problem. For his love, he shall be great. Well, yeah, that was going to his head. Vanity was part of his problem. And he did not continue as called or commanded and thus lost his crown, or crown of blessings he could have received. In 18, again, I say unto you that it is my will that my servant Lyman White should continue in preaching for Zion, in the spirit of meekness, confessing me before the world, and I will bear him up as on eagles' wings, and he shall beget glory and honor to himself and unto my name. Now, Lyman White was a strong leader too, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. The spirit of meekness didn't come easily for him, and that eventually spelled his downfall. He did not continue in preaching for Zion until the very end. After Joseph Smith's martyrdom, Lyman White eventually left the church and even tried to gather saints to come with him to build up his own Zion in Texas. So verse 18 didn't happen for Lyman White, nor did verse 19, again some foreshadowing or foreboding here, that when he shall finish his work, I may receive him unto myself, even as I did my servant David Patton, who is with me at this time. Remember, he was the apostle killed in the Battle of Crooked River back in Missouri, usually considered the first martyr of this dispensation. So also David Patton, uh, also my servant Edward Partridge, that first great bishop, he's since passed on and is with the Lord, according to this verse. Also my aged servant Joseph Smith Sr., who sitteth with Abraham at his right hand, and blessed and holy is he, for he is mine. That must, those three names, Patton and Partridge and Joseph Smith Sr., that reassurance, that, that confirmation, they are with God. On the right hand of, of Abraham, they made it. They endured to the end. Will you, Lyman? It's amazing these people that are called, so many of them named by name here in section 124, are given so much opportunity to make a difference and they have the potential to do it. They just don't endure to the end. And as a result, they fail to receive the blessings promised them. In verse 20, we meet another man. Again, verily I say unto you, my servant George Miller is without guile, he may be trusted because of the integrity of his heart. And for the love which he has to my testimony, I, the Lord, love him. 
So far, it sounds a lot like Hiram Smith back in verse 15, right? He loves what I love. His testimony is, is strong, and I love him for it. I love him for his guilelessness, like Nathaniel of old, uh, and for his integrity. As a result, verse 21, I therefore say unto you, I seal upon his head the office of a bishopric, like unto my servant Edward Partridge, who had already passed away, that he may receive the consecrations of mine house, that he may administer blessings upon the heads of the poor of my people, saith the Lord. Let no man despise my servant George, for he shall honor me. And sure enough, George Miller is called to be a bishop. He does administer blessings upon the heads of the poor. He is responsible, as was Bishop Partridge, as was Bishop Whitney, uh, to take care of those consecrations to be able to help move forward the kingdom. Uh, and, and who better to serve as a bishop than someone who has no guile, that has integrity, that has a testimony. Now, like I said, so much like Hiram, one difference though, and, and this goes back to what we saw in 19 about Lyman White, and will you be able to endure to the end? like Patton and Partridge and Father Smith did. Sadly for George Miller, he did not. By the time they were at winter quarters, he had a falling out with Brigham Young and left the Quorum of the Twelve to go first join Lyman White down in Texas, second to join James Strang up in Michigan, uh, just kind of following splinter groups, just find, trying to find a place where he could, he could continue in some branch of, of the restored gospel but not following the keys of the kingdom that were with the Quorum of the Twelve. In verse 22, let my servant George and my servant Lyman and my servant John Snyder and others build a house unto my name. Such a one as my servant Joseph shall show unto them upon the place which he shall show unto them also. Now, as I said at the beginning of this lesson, there's going to be two main buildings that section 124 is going to call for, two houses. One is the house of the Lord, and the other is a house for his servants, his visitors. And that's the one that's being referred to here. You have this building committee in verse 22. And 23 describes what they're supposed to construct. It shall be for a house for boarding. So a boarding house, what we would call a hotel. And if you think about the Hotel Utah, which is right across the street from, the, from Temple Square in Salt Lake City, it was following the same idea as what section 124 described for Nauvoo, where that was the best hotel in the state. And what better place to look out your window and see Temple Square. And now it's no longer called the Hotel Utah. It's called the Joseph Smith Memorial Building. But you can still go into that building and up on the top floor where there's a few restaurants on the west side, you can look out the window and behold the house of God from a beautiful and unique vantage point. Like I said, those two blocks uh, there in downtown Salt Lake City today can, can look back at section 124, verse 23, as their precedent. This boarding house is described in this way. It shall be for a house for boarding, a house that strangers may come from afar to lodge therein. Therefore, let it be a good house, worthy of all acceptation, that the weary traveler may find health and safety while he shall contemplate the word of the Lord and the cornerstone I have appointed for Zion. What I love about this hotel is that it is simply means to a far greater end. This isn't some kind of money-making venture. This isn't some kind of, we're just trying to roll out the red carpet and wine and dine or, or show off to, to people from outside of town. No, it's, do you understand where they're coming to? 
This is a cornerstone of Zion. This is going to be polished with the beauty of a palace. And people can come and will have, they will have things to think about here, believe me. Uh, it's interesting to see people who come to Utah and just end up scratching their heads. I mean, it's amazing that in a state that has so many incredible national parks, the number one tourist attraction in the state is still Temple Square. And for people to come and just be blown away by the temple, to walk through the visitor centers, to meet those incredible angels, the sister missionaries, to just to go to Welfare Square, to wherever it is, to the city of the saints, there's something worth thinking about here. And so to give them a place where they can rest a while. You can find health and safety here. But more than mere hospitality, you are being given a chance to contemplate the things of God, to ask your questions, to find your answers, to continue your pursuit for truth. Verse 24, This house shall be a healthful habitation, if it be built unto my name. And if the governor which shall be appointed unto it shall not suffer any pollution to come upon it, it shall be holy, or the Lord your God will not dwell therein. Again, we usually think of temples being the building we build to the name of God. We think of temples as the place where we shouldn't allow pollution to enter. But should our homes be held to some lower standard? Now, I'm not saying there's going to be che checking recommends at, the, at your front door, but a certain degree of of watchfulness, of vigilance, of desiring our own homes to be healthful habitations, and to have a place where our children can go to think about the glories of the kingdom of God, to contemplate the, the word of the Lord. Is that happening in our homes? Are we doing our very best to keep pollution at bay, to dedicate our home to God so that his name can dwell here? Now, verse 25, where they're going to shift from the boarding house to the house of God. In verse 25, again, verily I say unto you, let all my saints come from far. It's going to be all hands on deck. We need you all to come. We all gathered in Ohio to build the Kirtland Temple. We all gathered to independence in hopes of building a temple there. We gathered to far west, to, to Adam on Diamond. We were trying to build temples. Joseph Smith himself said, what's the purpose of gathering God's people in any age? It's always to build a temple. And so all ye saints come from far. 26, send ye swift messengers, yea, chosen messengers, and say unto them, come ye with all your gold and your silver, your precious stones, with all your antiquities, and with all who have knowledge of antiquities, that will come, may come. Bring the box tree, the fir tree, the pine tree, together with all the precious trees of the earth, Come with iron, with copper, with brass, with zinc, with all your precious things of the earth, and build a house to my name, for the Most High to dwell therein. Remember, we were already asking the kings of the earth to come with their gold and silver. Some may respond positively to the Lord's invita invitation. Most, sadly, will not. Not many of the rich, not many of the noble, not, not many of the learned. That was Paul's complaint. Well, but you saints, come. You already resonated with the tuning fork and your light cleaved unto the light of Christ. Come now and join with those saints gathered in this center spot. Bring all that you have and offer it to the Lord. Make a house to God's name on the basis of consecration. 
and let's build that house with the best possible materials. Cedar and gold all over again. Now, 28, why do we need this? For there is not a place found on earth that he may come to and restore again that which was lost unto you, or which he hath taken away, even the fullness of the priesthood. Now, wait a minute. I thought we, we already had the priesthood back from 1829. Uh, Aaronic priesthood? Well, yes, but then there's Melchizedek. Well, we got that too. Okay, well, what about other priesthood keys? Well, that was 1836, right? Kirtland Temple. We got Moses and Elias and Elijah restoring these keys. True, but there is still yet more to come. You were, you were endowed with power from on high in Kirtland, but the greater, fuller endowment will not yet be revealed until Nauvoo. And so as they're going to build the temple here, and a greater endowment, a fuller priesthood will be revealed to them. Remember we saw that in the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple? That we may grow up in God and receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost? What do you mean fullness? I already have the Holy Ghost. Well, you have the partialness. Keep growing. Brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. Well, same with the priesthood. If we saw at the end of section 121 that the doctrine of the priesthood would distill upon their souls as the dews from heaven, well, there's still yet some dew to fall. And for them to receive this fullness of the priesthood, there has to be a house built to God's name for, for that priesthood to be fully restored. In verse 29, he gets more specific about baptisms for the dead. Now, this was a doctrine that Joseph first taught at a funeral, fitting place to talk about what happens to those on the other side. And as people were, as the veil was thin, and people were reckoning with their own mortality and, rec and, and also considering the promise of immortality. Is there hope for those on the other side of the veil? And Joseph reveals the doctrine of baptism for the dead. Now, if you remember section 76, when he revealed the degrees of glory, which is such a glorious vision and revelation, the saints weren't so sure about that one. Remember when we talked about that and even Brigham Young himself took a while to wrap his head and heart around that? Like he just went so far against the, the Calvinist God of damnation or even just the idea of heaven and hell that most people had, had grown up with. It took them a while. That was not the case with baptisms for the dead. And it's not because they had such a keen understanding of 1 Corinthians 15, 29, uh, where, where Paul hints at baptism for the dead. We'll talk about that more next week when we get to section 127 and 128. But... The saints weren't thinking, well, is this true doctrine? Does this make sense uh, scripturally? It was like, no, there's a chance to help my kindred dead. The incredible blessings the restored gospel has brought into my life can be shared with those that have already passed on. Even the grave isn't too late. Wow, what a merciful God. What a long-suffering Lord that has made ample provision. That's Joseph's phrase, ample provision for all of his children to come home. And they were, I mean, they were beelining it to the Mississippi River and, and baptizing each other like crazy. Men on behalf of women or men, women being baptized on behalf of women or men, no recorders taking. I mean, it was not a house of order yet. Uh, they didn't even have the house yet, and there was no order. It was kind of willy-nilly crazy, and we'll talk more about that next week. But the enthusiasm was there, which I love, and which I get a sense from these next few verses that God really loved, too. It's like he's out there going, whoa, 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 whoa. No, okay, um, <laughs> we're going to need to iron out a few kinks here. We're going to need to have some order 
and a recorder and write down some things. But in the meantime, I'm loving the enthusiasm, kids. I'm thrilled that you're so thrilled by this doctrine. So I'll take what you're doing in the meantime. That's what he gets at here. Verse 29, for a baptismal font there is not upon the earth, that they, my saints, may be baptized for those who are dead. Now 30 explains the order of this house of order. This ordinance, and order and ordinance come from the same root words, this ordinance belongeth to my house and cannot be acceptable to me only in the days of your poverty, wherein ye are not able to build a house unto me. So 29, certain things need to take place in certain places. Now with a baptism, you'd think, well, anywhere there's water, we're good to go. Well, for a regular baptism, yes, a baptism for the living. But for a baptism for the dead, that requires that water to be within sacred walls, a dedicated, consecrated space for this. Uh, when some people say, why do I have to go to a certain place to do anything? Well, do you, do you make that complaint when you're going in for surgery? Do you wonder why the doctor doesn't make house calls anymore? And just, can't you just come and, and do my heart transplant here at home? Well, no. Do you have any idea how much equipment is required? And to be in a place that where if anything goes wrong, you can, the people can rush in and save you? Some things just need to be done in certain places. And the temple is the place for baptisms for the dead. Now, 30 again shows God's mercy and his, his patience with us, his understanding. We saw this, I mentioned this back in section 46, when the saints weren't doing church exactly right. But they, and they asked the Lord, hey, we're doing this right, right? And he's like, no. And he's like, what? When, when were you going to get around to telling us? And he's like, well, when were you going to get around to asking me? In the meantime, you weren't ruining anything. Uh, and so I kind of let you do your own thing until you figured out to ask me if, if there was a better way. And there is. We talked about Acts 17, where Paul speaks of a winking God that sometimes looks at us and winks, knowing we're not quite doing it right, but gives us time until his winking is past and he's asking us to do it correctly. Well, you get a sense in these verses about that winking God. I'll wink at your, Missis your Mississippi River baptisms. Like I said, I'm thrilled with your enthusiasm. I'm so glad you want to spread these blessings to those beyond the veil. However, they're only acceptable for a time. And that's the time of your poverty. When you haven't been able yet to build a house. But, verse 31 I command you, all ye my saints, to build a house unto me. And I grant unto you a sufficient time to build a house unto me. And during this time, your baptisms shall be acceptable unto me. But, 32, behold, at the end of this appointment, your baptisms for your dead shall not be acceptable unto me. And if you do not these things at the end of the appointment, ye shall be rejected as a church with your dead, saith the Lord your God. Wow. You see both justice and mercy there. The mercy, understanding your poverty, knowing what you're up against, I will accept, I'll wink at some of the baptisms that, that aren't going perfectly according to order. And I think that applies to a lot of things in our life that God winks at in the meantime because of his mercy. And we're young or we're, we're figuring it out or we're inexperienced or we're, we're poor in whatever case. But there comes a time where the winking is over where that mercy is displaced by justice, 
because mercy gave you enough time to get up to speed. And now you're, now you're just presuming upon his grace. Now you're just taking advantage of something. And God is, is not to be mocked in these things. No, I, I gave you sufficient time. Did you use it as you should have? I mean, that's strong language. If you don't get up to speed, eventually I will reject you as a church. I'll reject you and your dead. By the way, the possessive pronouns there are beautiful. He keeps referring to them as your dead. And if your hearts have not yet turned to your fathers, then maybe the dead don't yet feel like they belong to you. But as you gain that spirit of Elijah, as you see... The people who have passed on, whether they're in your direct line or not, just fellow brothers and sisters, fellow children of God, those are my dead. And I want to give them the blessings that God has given me. It's a beautiful relationship that's being formed across the veil there. But we got to get at it, okay? And you got to... Thankfully, the saints did all that they could to be able to build the Nauvoo Temple. Amazingly, they finished the basement first and quick enough that they could kind of enclose it where the baptismal font was and dedicate at least that portion. Again, this enthusiasm, we don't want to wait. We want everyone to receive these blessings and we can't wait for the whole building to be finished. So let's dedicate the baptistry. Is that, is that good enough, God? Does that honor your, your justice and still partake of your mercy? I, I hope so. Uh, because we really want to move this work forward. And that's exactly what they did. He reiterates these issues in the next few verses. 33, Verily I say unto you that after you have had sufficient time to build a house to me, wherein the ordinance of baptizing for the dead belongeth, and for which the same was instituted from before the foundation of the world, your baptisms for your dead cannot be acceptable unto me. For therein are the keys of the holy priesthood ordained, that you may receive honor and glory. And after this time, your baptisms for the dead by those who are scattered abroad are not acceptable unto me, saith the Lord. Like I said already, it's all a matter of timing. Use the time God has given you. Don't just assume that it can go on eternally because God is merciful. Remember, this life is the time to prepare to meet God. The same spirit that possesses you in this life will possess you in the life to come. There's Amulek for you in Alma 34. And so if it's just, oh, we'll get around to the temple you're not getting around to it now. Don't think it's all going to change later. I'll accept what you're doing in the meantime, but be working towards getting it right. There's, it reminded me of Brad Wilcox's talk from just this last conference, that worthiness is not flawlessness, that I will accept your best efforts in the meantime as you're working towards fulfillment or, or full worthiness. There's, again, there's so much mercy here, but do not allow mercy to rob justice in this. God has put all of the, I mean, even what he says in 33 about baptisms for the dead instituted from before the foundation of the world. Do you see in that God's attempt, his, his, his successful attempt to balance justice and mercy? That he can say something like Jesus said to Nicodemus, that without baptism of water and of the spirit, you cannot enter in the kingdom of God. That that could be so restrictive that without, there's talk about exclusivism, talk about restriction. You have to be baptized if you're going to come home. But what about all the people? And you, you ask all those questions. It's the fate of the unevangelized is the technical term for that question. What happens to all the people who never had a chance to listen to Jesus or learn of him or receive a baptism in his name? 
Well, you either stick to that, that exclusivist uh, checkpoint, you have to be baptized, and then you damn everyone to hell who's never had a chance to hear. Or you err on the side of mercy and think, well, there must be some way that God's going to get around that rule, but God getting around his own rules? That doesn't sound just. Well, from before the foundation of the world, God instituted law and means whereby we could all fulfill that law. That's what the atonement of Christ is for. That's what the restoration of the gospel is for. That's what the temple is for. Temple work ties up every loose string. And to think of God's wisdom from before the foundation of the world to put into place both doctrine and practice that allows the redeeming reach of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to extend as far as the redeeming reach of the Redeemer himself. That, that Christ can reach all of God's children. The umbrellas, remember this analogy we've used? God's umbrella would ideally keep every one of his children out from under the rain. And so the love of Christ, the, the love of God extends that far. So the redemption of Christ must extend that far. And so the ordinances of salvation must extend that far also. If Christ can't reach all of God's children, then Christ must not be the way God is going to save everyone. And yet he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by him. And if a church can't extend the ordinances of salvation to all of Christ's people and all of God's children, then we can't possibly be the church of Jesus Christ because our reach falls short. I am so grateful for a church whose umbrella reaches as far as the love of God. Infinite inclusivity. And it was set up that way from before the foundation of the world. We just have a responsibility, a stewardship, and we will be held accountable for that. Otherwise, we won't be acceptable before God. Now, verse 36 for it is ordained that in Zion, and in her stakes, and in Jerusalem, those places which I have appointed for refuge, shall be the places for your baptisms for your dead. Now this is 1841, and there's only one temple on the earth, without a baptismal font, by the way. Uh, they're starting construction on the first one that will actually have a baptistry for baptisms for the dead. But already he's speaking of Zion and Jerusalem. There's the two Jerusalems, old and new the two headquarters of the kingdom of God upon the earth when the Savior comes, but also her stakes. There will be the places, plural, for baptisms for the dead. Wow, to, to see what, what really started happening in President Kimball's day and then really ramped up in President Hinckley's day and is going crazy now in President Nelson's day where temples are dotting the earth to the point that and will it come a day where in all of her stakes, there's a place for the baptisms for the dead? That's a, I mean, we have, what, 3,000 stakes now? So we got a lot more temples to build, obviously. Uh, but there's something about that incredible rolling out of the kingdom of God where upon the stakes of Zion, there will be places for the baptisms of our dead. Beautiful work to be done. 37, again, verily I say unto you, how shall your washings be acceptable unto me? except ye perform them in a house which you have built to my name. Now, no, this washing is not just another term for baptism. Even though baptism does use water for the washing away of sin, that's just symbolic. 
Uh, we saw in the School of the Prophets that there was an ordinance of the washing of feet there that Joseph Smith participated in and the other saints. But this is a different kind of washing. And here, as we, as we shift to the, the Nauvoo Temple, as opposed to the Kirtland Temple, we see this fullness of the priesthood beginning to be restored, including its initiatory ordinances of washings and anointings. We'll receive endowments. We'll see sealings. All of this will take place in Nauvoo. And we'll see an incredible list of those things in just a moment. In verse 38, For for this cause I commanded Moses that he should build a tabernacle, that they should bear it with them in the wilderness, and to build a house in the land of promise, that those ordinances might be revealed, which had been hid from before the world was. Again, certain places for certain things. And I love that he speaks of Moses and his tabernacle in the wilderness, and a house in the land of promise. The tabernacle itself would be set up more permanently in Shiloh, that's where you're going to get Eli and Hannah and Samuel and so on. And then Samuel goes to David and David wants to build a temple. He's a man of war and it needs to be built by a man of peace. So then it passes on to Solomon and Solomon will build the temple of Solomon there in Jerusalem. And so whether it's a mobile tabernacle in Moses' day or a permanent temple in Solomon's, there's something powerful about needing that place to be there. Again, the tabernacle is the best example where wherever you happen to be, you need a temple. So if you're on the move during your exodus, then I'll be on the move too. And my house need, will need to be a portable one. That's what the tabernacle was, a portable temple. And then once you are fixed in your land of inheritance, then the temple can be permanent as well. And there it was for the temple of Solomon. But there's something beautiful about wherever you happen to be, Make sure there's a temple. Now that was nigh unto impossible through most of the church's history until more recently where temples are going so wherever, even to the point that so many island temples that President Nelson has announced. Now I served a mission on an island and an island that I never thought would get a temple. Now there was one in the Dominican Republic that was close enough. But to see temples built on small islands where the church will probably never be big enough to to constitute a, a temple the way we used to picture things. But wherever you happen to be, you need to have access to the blessings of the temple. I loved something an old, an old bishop of mine in Tennessee used to say. I loved this phrase. It really stuck with me. He'd always talk about running to the temple to receive its blessings, to find its peace, to, to, to be within its refuge that in a chaotic world, the temple needed to be close enough for us to run to. And, and that's happening in our day. Even in the Old Testament, Abraham, we studied the, the, the life of Abraham, and everywhere he went, he moved a lot. Everywhere he went, he would, one of the first things he would do would be set up an altar. And the altar also is indicative of, of temple, of presence of God. Wherever you go, make sure there's an altar nearby. Wherever you go, make sure you can run to a temple anytime you need to be there. That's the sense I get in 38. And then 39, I don't know if there's a better verse in all of scripture that puts all in one verse the kinds of things that happen within the house of God. Therefore, verily I say unto you, that your anointings and your washings, remember we saw the washings back in 37, well now they're coupled with anointings. You're washed, you're anointed. There is water, there is oil. 
That's what happened with kings and priests in the Old Testament. They were washed and anointed. Anointing, even, that's where Messiah comes from, the anointed one in Hebrew, Mashiach. Or Christos in Greek, the anointed one. We are washed, we are anointed, so that we can also become kings and priests unto the king of kings and the high priest of all priests. Keep going. Your baptisms for the dead, which we talked about in the last few verses, and your solemn assemblies. Hmm, we sing about that in the Spirit of God like a fire is burning. Call in your solemn assemblies in spirit. They held one in, in Kirtland. We'll hold them in Nauvoo. We still hold them in our day. A solemn assembly. What else? Your memorials for your sacrifices by the sons of Levi. Hmm. That one's Malachi 3, which was a chapter that Moroni quoted to Joseph Smith along with Malachi 4, with hearts of fathers and children turning and so on. We'll see this next week when we get to section 128. And what is this sacrifice by the sons of Levi? Back in section 84, when we talked about the priesthood, the sons of Levi, whose sons ye are, that that's Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood holders are the sons of Levi, and we make an offering of, of righteousness to God in his temple. Again, next week we'll talk more about that. What else happens in the temple? For your oracles in your most holy places, wherein you receive conversations. Now that's a beautiful phrase, and one I don't think we think often enough about when, we, when it comes to temple worship. In fact, I've often done this with my students, that if you wrote temple, W-O-R blank on the board and asked them to fill it in, they always put a K there, temple work. And I'm like, that's true, like, that's good. But then I'll erase the K and put an S-H-I-P, and how about, how about that one? How about temple worship? Oh yeah, we do that there too, huh? Yeah. But where do you spend the bulk of your time? in an endowment room as opposed to the celestial room. Well, of course, the endowment takes a lot longer, right? Uh, we, we have work to do, and so I am doing the work for the dead. And so I do the work in that endowment room. And then I get to go to the celestial room, which is kind of just, wow, I made it, wonderful. But look at the time, I gotta go. Ah, no, the, it took me an hour and a half to two hours just to slow my mind down, to, to wean myself off the world. And to, to be in a, in a spiritual, mental, emotional place where I can really have a conversation with God. You see, everything we've read up to this point, washings and anointings, there's a place for that in the temple. Baptisms for the dead, there's a place for that in the temple. Solemn assemblies in some of the larger temples, there are even places for that within the temple. Uh, Nauvoo had a place like that. Salt Lake has a place like that. Los Angeles has a place like that. There's just the, the one whole floor in the Los Angeles temple. One whole floor in the Salt Lake temple was for solemn assemblies. There's places for this. But oracles in your most holy places, wherein you receive conversations? Wow. I don't know of a better description of the celestial room than that phrase. Not only what it is, but what it's for. There is our most holy place. That's the representation of the presence of God. We are in his celestial kingdom. We're in the celestial room. And what is that holy place, that most holy place for? It's for an oracle. Oracles are, are receiving revelation. Oracles are connecting with God to understand his word and will for us. Why do you think he used the word revelation? 
conversation. Now, he could have used the word revelation, but what I love about conversation is it, it suggests what revelation should be all along, and that's two-way communication. That if we're having a conversation with our Father in heaven, in his most holy place, are we speaking to him? Is he speaking to us? Is that what is happening within his holy house? I pray that's the case. It took you a long time to get to the celestial room. Enjoy the experience once you're there. But we don't do anything. That's the point. As I've thought about the beauty and power of Eastern spirituality, which does such a better job than most Western branches of spirituality when it comes to mindfulness and, and quietness and be still and know that I am God. Well, in the celestial room, it's, it's our holiest place and our quietest place. Our most contemplative worship space is there. It's a place for conversation. And it's the vertical kind that God intends. What else happens in the temple? Your statutes and judgments. We do learn the Lord's law there. For the beginning of the revelations and foundation of Zion, just the beginning. Remember what President Nelson just said, quoting Joseph Smith to Brigham Young. We've done the best we could with the endowment. It's not quite right, though. It's still a line upon line, precept upon precept. And I've, this is as many lines and precepts as I've got. Brigham, keep building from there. And as President Nelson just taught us in conference a few weeks ago, now, yes, there will yet be revelations and foundations. Wasn't that a great talk that he gave from within the foundation of the Salt Lake Temple, that little clip? It's amazing. Nauvoo, just the beginning. And, and we're still building upon that foundation today. It's also for the glory, honor, and endowment of all her municipals that are ordained by the ordinance of my holy house, which my people are always commanded to build unto my holy name. Such a power-packed verse. Those are the blessings that we receive in the house of God. Look through the list. See which ones you feel like you are receiving and which ones you may need to grow up in God a little bit more to receive. I've still got my list I'm working on too. I do want more conversations. I do want more revelation. I do want to deepen my foundation in the temple of God. Well, verse 40, Verily I say unto you, let this house be built unto my name, that I may reveal mine ordinances therein unto my people. All ordinances I listed in 39. And then 41, interesting. For I deign to reveal unto my church things which have been kept hid from before the foundation of the world, things that pertain to the dispensation of the fullness of times. You see, I've always been a fan of the, which one is it? The sixth article of faith? starts with we believe. <laughs> we believe in the same organization that existed in the primitive church. Okay, And so that we, and I always loved that because it felt like, yeah, I mean, the church is just like it was back in, in Old Testament or New Testament times. Well, yes, that's true. We believe that and, and practice it. But that doesn't explain everything. And I remember that first hitting me as a missionary where sometimes people would ask a question or try to throw something in my face and like, well, where's that? Where's the precedent for that in the Old Testament or the New Testament? And there'd be times where I'm like, uh, 
uh, I, don't, I don't know. Now, this can be taken too far to the extreme in either way. Uh, because the church is based on Old and New Testament precedents. It is the restoration of all things. But verse 41 suggests there are some things for which we will find no precedent in prior dispensations. And that shouldn't worry us or shock us because there are some things that were reserved for the dispensation of the fullness of times. Some things kept hid from before the foundation of the world. So I would simply say be grateful for the, the parallels and precedents that the Bible gives to us who are now living in the last days. But don't confine yourself to ancient scripture. Be open to the revelation that God gives to as he reveals things that are meant for our day and our day only. Not everything will have a precedent. That to me makes me all the more excited to see more revelation continue to be given in this ongoing restoration. Now verse 42, I will show unto my servant Joseph all things pertaining to this house and the priesthood thereof and the place whereon it shall be built. So look to the prophet and understand from him the, your marching orders as far as this temple is concerned. 43, and ye shall build it on the place where you have contemplated building it. For that is the place which I have chosen for you to build it. I do love the, the Lord's recognition of, I know you've been, this has been on your mind. Everywhere you go, you're supposed to be building a temple. And you've been here in, in commerce and then, and now Nauvoo for quite some time. And you've probably been wondering, I, I, I'm assuming we're going to build a temple here too. That's, we've gotten into the habit. Everywhere we go, we're supposed to build a temple. I wonder where it's going to be. Where, where's the holy ground? And if you've been to Nauvoo, I mean, could, could you think of a better place to put a temple than right there on this, on this hill overlooking the, the, everything below it, overlooking the, the beautiful bend in the Mississippi? I mean, the, the view coming out of the temple is breathtaking in Nauvoo. My parents won the mission lottery, <laughs> if there is such a thing, and were able to serve as temple missionaries in Nauvoo. And so the, Nau I mean the, the Nauvoo Temple and that, and that beautiful city has such a, a central place in their hearts and central to all of us as we got to live their mission vicariously through them. But I just love the, the recognition in 43 of, yeah, it's been on your mind. And you keep thinking, oh, what? it's got to be here. It's got to be here. There's no better place. This is the best. I mean, if we give the Lord our very best tenth for tithing, then of course we're going to carve out the best possible space in the city. For his, for his house. And the Lord's like, yeah, you've got good taste in real estate. So do I. And exactly where you're contemplating is where the house is going to be built. My father-in-law, my, my parents-in-law lived in Sacramento. And my father-in-law told me the story that when the Sacramento temple was being dedicated, the stake president who had been kind of the head of the temple committee for that area confessed a sin to President Hinckley, who was there to dedicate the temple. Uh, and, he, and he said, President, I just want to get this off my chest. Uh, you, when you came to Sacramento to choose the temple site and state presidents, we had done a ton of homework to identify a bunch of possible sites. But there was one of all the choices. I knew that was going to be where the temple ended up. I mean, the church already owned the property. It was in a beautiful location. There, there, was, there was visibility, there was uh, freeway accessibility. I mean, it was, 
everything that you kind of assume a temple would need, it was there. And, and sure enough, when I, when, once you saw it, you knew that's where the temple needed to be too. Well, here's my confession. I purposely took you there last. Out of all the places that we thought the temple might be, I kind of played stupid all day. And, and brought you around to all the other spots and saved this one for last. Because honestly, I knew once you got here that this would be the Lord's, that this would be what the Lord chose. Uh, you just had to see it. And, and I didn't want to take you here first because then my day with you would be done. I wanted to spend as much time with you as I could. So sorry. Sorry for a long day. There, there's something beautiful about just contemplating and, and coming to a conclusion, your best guess, and the Lord saying, yeah, you're right. That, that's exactly my will, too. It's nice when you and the Lord are thinking on the same wavelength. Okay? 44, if ye labor with all your might, I will consecrate that spot that it shall be made holy. You see, it's the place I've chosen, but it's not yet consecrated. Judaism looks at Jerusalem as a place that is inherently holy. At least the spot where the, the Holy of Holies stood in the Temple of Solomon. They, they, they call it the, the axis mundi, the, 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 the axis of the world. The, the one spot on earth that is inherently holy because it lies right directly beneath the throne of God in heaven. Uh, it was holy before anything happened to it. Well, you get a different sense there in 43 and 44. There's a place I've chosen it. I want you to build it there. You've been thinking about it. You were right. But labor and give it the best that you can and build this place with cedar and gold or with all those fir tree, pine tree, box tree, all the precious trees that you, can, uh, that you find in, in your vicinity. I mean, was George Miller, that bishop I mentioned earlier, he sent people off to Wisconsin to find better trees than what they found there in, in, uh, in Illinois to be able to bring them down to build the temple. Amazing amounts of sacrifice. But what I love about 44, I will, here's future tense, I will consecrate the spot so it shall be made holy. Instead of thinking of places that are just inherently holy and we just kind of tap into that holiness, the Lord is asking us to participate in, in the sanctification of the earth, to labor with all our might in creating sacred space, that God can then consecrate. We dedicate it to him. He consecrates it to us. It's that epicenter of holiness that we've talked about previously that then extends across the earth. 45, here's another if. We saw an if in 44, if you labor. Remember we saw with those ifs with John C. Bennett. Your, your discipleship is a little iffy. Well, here's some iffiness here. Conditional promises. You labor, I'll consecrate. 45, another positive if. If my people will hearken unto my voice and unto the voice of my servants whom I have appointed to lead my people, behold, verily I say unto you, they shall not be moved out of their place. Hmm. That language comes with some luggage. <laughs> moved out of their place. Oh, they're still licking their wounds from being moved from place to place to place in Missouri. And even moved from place to place to place leading up to Missouri. They've been kicked around left and right. They're constantly moving and hear this promise, if you'll just hearken to my voice and the voice of my servants. Remember section one, it is the same. Whether I'm the one speaking or my servants are, it's the same message inspired from the same ultimate source. If you'll hearken to that, you won't be moved. That suggests also one of the reasons they have been moved so many times. 
They weren't hearkening to the voice of God or his servants. That's always our downfall, which is what 46 suggests. We saw a positive if in 44, a positive if in 45. Here's the negative if of 46. But if they will not hearken to my voice, nor unto the voice of these men whom I have appointed, they shall not be blessed, because they pollute mine holy grounds and mine holy ordinances and charters and my holy words which I give unto them. Remember we saw that in Deuteronomy, that if you pollute the land, the promised land, then it will spew you out. And they polluted Missouri, and Missouri spewed them out. Don't pollute Illinois. Don't pollute Salt Lake. Don't pollute London, or Paris, or Buenos Aires, or Mexico City, or uh, Rio de, de Janeiro, or wherever you happen to be. Live the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever you are planted. Hearken to the voice of God and his servants, and your land will be a holy land to the Lord. And the Lord will consecrate it and make it holy. Otherwise, if we do pollute it, we may end up be getting moved from it, which was the history of the church in those, in those days. 47, it shall come to pass that if you build a house unto my name and do not do the things which I say, I will not perform the oath which I make unto you, neither fulfill the promises which ye expect at my hands, saith the Lord. 47 is such a key passage here. In many ways, it's simply reiterating what we've seen elsewhere, like section 82, I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say, but if you do not what I say, you have no promise. I mean, every promise is conditioned upon our obedience, our faithfulness, and so 47 reiterates that. But I love the fact he does it in the context of temple building, that if you build a house, but you don't do the things which I say, then don't expect the promised blessings to come. I've had some institute students over the years talk about, oh, the fear of being, of being trapped by their temple ceilings, or in their parents' sake or case, for example, where it's you know a spouse that is abusive or just not the kind of person you'd want to spend uh, mortality with, let alone immortality. But there's this fear of, oh, but they've been sealed. And will my mom be trapped with my dad or vice versa? Will I be trapped with someone? And, and it's like, well, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. This is supposed to be a blessing. It's not a curse, okay? That, so make sure you understand that first and foremost. But the other side is what I get the, the feel from in 47, that the temple alone is insufficient. I mean, it's absolutely essential, but it's not sufficient on its own. I'll put it this way. I've sometimes asked my classes, uh, what's the difference between a temple wedding and a temple marriage? And as we've thought about it, it's like, uh, oh, a temple wedding, I mean, it takes, what, a half an hour, an hour with the pictures? Now, that's the ordinance that takes place within the temple when you are sealed by, by sealing power. Bound on earth, have it bound in heaven. That's your temple wedding. Well, then what's your temple marriage? Oh, that's the lifetime that follows. It's one, or you could use celestial. What's a, a celestial wedding as opposed to a celestial marriage or a celestial life? And then the real question, and which of those is required? And the answer is both. Now, too often we think of celestial weddings as the key. And again, they're essential. They have to be there. Uh, I was sealed in the temple. Awesome. Well, what did you do afterwards, though? Because those couples that, oh, yeah, well, I was sealed in the temple and that was it. And we never went back. Or we didn't keep the commandments afterwards or didn't live up to our covenants that we made in the temple. 
And the, 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 the thing we have to realize that a temple wedding without, that isn't followed by a temple marriage is not one that is bound on in heaven as it was bound on earth. 47 makes it clear, if you build the house, but don't do the things that the house is asking of you. My uncle uh, Mike said this, and I love this analogy, that the day you're sealed, God doesn't, isn't promising you perfection at that, at that moment. He's giving you an empty jar. I mean, the analogy that Uncle Mike is using is, is canning. And when you're canning preserves, okay, preserving fruit. And you got the boiling water and all those things. If you've seen your mom or your grandma do it and, and you put the fruit in and then you, you, in this empty jar, and then you seal the lid on there. And it's not just, you know, screwing it on as tightly as you can. There's vacuum packed basically with the boiling water and so on. I, I, it's a mystery to me. I don't know how mom and grandma ever did it. But the point is, it seals that in so that it can last practically forever. Well, to see a temple ceiling, you don't have anything in your, you haven't done anything yet. You were just married um, and you don't have anything in your jar. There's no fruits of a celestial marriage. There's no fruits of a, of a celestial life yet. But at the temple, the part that happens in the house built to God's name is the promise that I will seal whatever you put inside. Here is your empty jar with the promise that whatever fruits of a lifetime of, of shared discipleship, of love and kindness and mercy and forgiveness and long-suffering and everything else that goes into a celestial life and a celestial marriage, I'll then preserve it so that throughout the eternities you can open that jar and feast upon the fruits that I have preserved for you. But those were fruits that you filled the jar with. The temple is the first part, but your life of living by the fruits of the Spirit is the second part, and both parts are required. Just because you built a house, if you don't perform the oath, then don't expect the fulfillment of the promised blessings. You will have nothing in your jar when you open it. Verse 48, For instead of blessings, ye by your own works bring cursings wrath, indignation, judgments upon your own heads by your follies. There's a word that goes back to what happened in Salem. By all your abominations. Those were concerns they had in the Missouri time period and in Kirtland before. Those follies and abominations which you practice before me, saith the Lord. I mean, the choice is always ours. When ancient Israel finished their exodus and got to the promised land, that was a pep rally of sorts that Moses commanded them to participate in. And so under Joshua's direction, when they got into the, into the promised land, on two mountainsides, Ebal and Gerizim, they had six tribes on one side and six tribes on the other. This would have been an amazing pep rally to watch because the six tribes on one side yelled out blessings and the six tribes on the other mountain yelled out cursings. It's like, and blessed are you if you... Keep the commands. And cursed are you if you don't. And back and forth, you know, back and forth, like, like in all those pep rallies of, you know, guys versus girls or seniors and juniors versus sophomores and freshmen, uh, our team versus your team, whatever. And to be in the middle of the valley 
That, that to me is, is the, the visual aid that's happening here, the metaphor. If I'm in the valley and I have choices to make of which mountain will I climb, which direction will I spend my life headed in? Towards blessings or towards curses? God is trying to make the choice as clear as he possibly can. I have set before you life and death. Wherefore choose life? Blessings, curses, the choice is yours. 49, verily, verily, I say unto you, that when I give a commandment to any of the sons of men to do a work unto my name, and those sons of men go with all their might and with all they have to perform that work and cease not their diligence. I mean, so far, so good. These are about as good and faithful servants as you possibly can get. But then notice what happens. The plot thickens. And their enemies come upon them and hinder them from performing that work. Hmm, sound familiar? We went to Missouri with every intention of building Zion, but we were hindered. So what happens? Behold, it behooveth me to require that work no more at the hands of those sons of men, but to accept of their offerings. Now, verse 49 would have perked up every ear in Nauvoo. Wait, 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 what? We... For the last two years, we've been building up Nauvoo, but with our eye ever westward towards Independence, Missouri. That's where we're supposed to be. Is, is it really worth it to, build, to work on this land as if for years? Well, verse 49 would have helped reassure them, yes. I am going to accept your, your will for the deed back in Missouri. If you, and no, you weren't perfect. I, I understand that. Uh, you, your follies and abominations, are I, I recognize them. But I also recognize what you were up against. And I understand what the Missourians were doing in terms of hindering you from performing that work. And so, in my mercy, I will accept your efforts as if they had been successful. That's a powerful principle in verse 49. If you are hindered for whatever reason, by outside forces or, or outside circumstances beyond your control. You did everything you could. You were diligent. You tried your hardest to perform the work that was required of you. But things got in your way. Then I will not require of that work of you. I'll accept whatever offering you were able to give me. 50, he continues, the iniquity and transgressions of my holy laws and commandments, I will visit upon the heads of those who hindered my work unto the third and fourth generation, so long as they repent not and hate me, saith the Lord God. So if there's these obstacles that were placed that kept you from succeeding in, in the missions that I'd given you, then the punishment for failure doesn't go on you. It goes on those who hindered you from accomplishing the work. Yes, there's an accountability for you, my servants, but there's an accountability for others as well. And if they were the obstacle, then they will pay the price for that. In a sense, this is those who dug a pit for their neighbor will end up falling into, into it themselves. This is the, the equivalent of the false accusations we saw last week. And if I falsely accuse you of something, then I will end up receiving the condemnation or the punishment that I intended you to suffer. That's the same sense here in verse 50. 51, therefore for this cause have I accepted the offerings of those whom I commanded to build up a city and a house unto my name in Jackson County, Missouri, and were hindered by your enemies, saith the Lord your God. 
So sleep in peace, you Illinois saints. You're not in the wrong spot. Give all you can. Your, your gold and silver, your sacrifice, your offerings, your acknowledgments here in Illinois will be acceptable. What you tried to do in Jackson County, Missouri is acceptable too. Yes, it's still my center spot. That won't change. But don't live in, in regret or impatience or feeling you're in the wrong spot. If mistakes were made, so be it. The beauty of the atonement of Christ is it allows us to learn from those mistakes and not be held hostage by them. So give Illinois your all. Give Salt Lake City your all in times to come. Give wherever, whatever stake of Zion you happen to be living in. Build the kingdom there. I, let me worry about independence. I'll take care of that in my own time and in my own way. What you have tried to do, I have accepted. Verse 52, I will answer judgment, wrath, and indignation, wailing and anguish, gnashing of teeth upon their heads unto the third and fourth generation. So long as they repent not and hate me, saith the Lord your God. And the civil war will do plenty to fulfill that warning. 53, and this I make an example unto you for your consolation concerning all those who have been commanded to do a work and have been hindered by the hands of their enemies and by oppression, saith the Lord your God. I love that 53 makes it crystal clear that the principle God has taught in, in 49 and in 50 and in 51 applies to other situations and not just Independence, Missouri. It's just in an example unto you. It's meant for your consolation. And so to any of you who had high hopes for a calling, that just you weren't able to fulfill it the way you had intended, high hopes for a mission that you weren't healthy enough to serve, high hopes for children that you did your very, very best to raise in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But you were up against the odds in a world that is not very hospitable to the gospel of Jesus Christ. For whatever reason, any of you who need consolation, the Lord is offering it. You did your very best. Rest easy in that. I love what, I think it was Alexandre Dumas who wrote, have courage in the great trials of life and patience in the small ones. And once you have laboriously accomplished your daily task, sleep in peace, for God is awake. Those words have offered consolation to me when I just can't seem to succeed in what I'm attempting to accomplish. I can rest in peace. I have laboriously accomplished my daily task. I gave it all that I could. But then I can sleep in peace because God is still awake. He's, st he's still at work on that mission that you couldn't perform. He's still working on that prodigal son or daughter that's, that you can't seem to reach right now. Anything that is hindering you from the righteous desires of your heart, God accepts your will for the deed. 54, for I am the Lord your God and will save all those of your brethren who have been pure in heart and have been slain in the land of Missouri, saith the Lord. You see, their sacrifices were not in vain either. Their offerings are acceptable, those martyrs in Missouri. 
55, again, verily I say unto you, I command you again to build a house to my name. Don't lose sight of the goal. In the midst of all of this mercy, uh, my judgment and justice is still there. In spite of all of my patience, yes, I have great expectations. So build the house to my name. Even in this place, right here in Nauvoo, that you may prove yourselves unto me that you are faithful in all things whatsoever I command you, that I may bless you and crown you with honor, immortality, and eternal life. What I love about 55 is God will give us other opportunities to prove that our, that our heart really was in the right place. You see, if we were just, if we, what's, I don't know even how to describe this. If we take what we just read in 49 to 54 and it's like, oh, sweet. If, if it just doesn't work out, I'm off the hook. Uh, and we start to presume upon the Savior's grace. We start to take advantage of his mercy. Mm, that's when justice kicks in really quick. Uh, it, it's when the Lord is saying, you know what, uh, you, were, you were kept from, you were hindered there. Well, let me give you an opportunity to, to show your, how serious you were in a different area of life. And it's amazing to see people who, oh, I can do this instead. Wonderful. And they do it. And the Lord is, ah, yes, there is proof. That's the phrase, right? You may prove yourselves that you're faithful. You didn't have evidence in Missouri of a completed temple. Now, was that your fault or theirs? Now, the answer is always yes, right? Lord, is it I? Yes. Lord, is it them? Yes. But on the I part, would I have done that if I'd had the chance? Would I have finished the temple in Missouri if I hadn't been hindered? Well, let's see. Let's give you an opportunity to do something over here in Illinois. Will you build a house? And they did. Ah, then of course you would have built a house there. I've, I've seen what you do when the obstacles are gone. And I'll, I, I'll, use, I'll take that as evidence. I love the reassurance there in 55. What you do here is proof of what you would have done there. And please take this not just in terms of geography. Take it in terms of different times of life. Sometimes it's our own stupidity, our folly, our abomination that's hindering us. Sometimes it's just mistakes that we've made and sins we've committed and certain, we talked about this in 4th Nephi last year. There's some, some cities you just can't rebuild because the, the land doesn't exist anymore. It's underwater. That city was, was buried by a, a mountain or swallowed up in the depths of the sea. Well, that's okay. You don't have to rebuild those ones. But build elsewhere. And at some other stage of life, it's amazing the opportunity God gives us to build to rebuild cities in places they never existed because we can't because we can't go back and make up for lost time nor do we have to build elsewhere build a temple here in, in Illinois 56 now I say unto you as pertaining to my boarding house okay so now we've, we've been talking about the temple the Nauvoo temple the last few verses now let's go back and talk some more about the Nauvoo house this hotel I say unto you, as pertaining to my boarding house, which I have commanded you to build for the boarding of strangers, let it be built unto my name, and let my name be named upon it. And let my servant Joseph and his house have place therein from generation to generation. It's amazing the similarities between the Nauvoo house and the Nauvoo temple, both built unto God's name, both with his name upon it. This boarding house, though, as we see at the end of 56, is going to be a place where Joseph and his family can live in as well. 
The laborer is worthy of his hire. Okay? There have even been prophets of the church who lived in the Hotel Utah. When David and McKay lived there, the room that he lived in, his apartment, was called, it was affectionately known as the Honeymoon Suite, which people would kind of laugh at. And they're like, uh, you've been married to your wife for like 70 years, and they call your apartment the Honeymoon Suite? And President McKay laughed and he said, well, when you're planning on being married forever, 70 years isn't bad for a honeymoon. Uh, the way he treated Emma Ray, uh, there, theirs was a marriage truly made in heaven. Uh, a celestial wedding that was followed by such a celestial marriage. Okay, uh, So have some space for Joseph and his family there in this boarding house as well. 57, for this anointing have I put upon his head, that his blessing shall also be put upon the head of his posterity after him. Now don't think of that in terms of uh, some kind of hereditary prophethood. That's not what 57 is referring to. It's simply a place to stay in the Nauvoo house. Okay, This is not some kind of... Joseph Smith III is now secretly being ordained to, to become Joseph's successor in the first presidency. No. 58, as I said unto Abraham concerning the kindreds of the earth, even so I say unto my servant Joseph, in thee and in thy seed shall the kindred of the earth be blessed. I love that the Lord is renewing that Abrahamic covenant upon Joseph Smith and on his seed, which I would say goes far beyond the direct line of posterity. It includes them, of course. But why do you think Joseph did so much to adopt people in? Even some of the plural marriages that we're engaged in, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, were more of to bring people into almost the tribe of Joseph. If Abraham is the father of the faithful, and you see Joseph as the father of the faithful in this, in this last dispensation, in thee, in thy seed... I even get hints of Isaiah 53 here about the Lord seeing his seed as he makes his soul an offering for sin. Abinadi teaches that, that explains that that seed are all those who believe in Christ and share his message. Their feet are just as beautiful, Nauvoo, upon the mountains as the feet of Christ, the Prince of Peace himself. And, and as we join with him in sharing that gospel, we are accounted his seed. We're his sons and we're his daughters. We are, we are spiritually begotten of him through covenant. Well, seed of Christ in that way, seed of Abraham in the covenant connection, seed of Joseph through the restoration of the gospel, and through that seed. This again is where exclusivity meets inclusivity. Such a beautiful contrary to prove. The exclusivity of being a chosen people, but the inclusivity of going out to choose everyone else to be chosen right alongside us. That we have to share the gospel. It's why we need to be endowed with power from on high. So missionaries can go out and spread these, these blessings to all the world. Every kindred of the earth blessed through the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do you think we're sending a proclamation to the kings of the world? We want everyone to know about this. That's radical inclusivity. Not some kind of... Oh, exclusive ecclesiology, that we're the true church and no one else has any, any business. No, it's, we are here to extend the blessings of the gospel to all. Verse 59, Therefore let my servant Joseph and his seed after him have place in that house from generation to generation, forever and ever, saith the Lord. Now that seems to go far beyond just the Nauvoo house. Uh, this sounds like the house of God and, and engaging in his work forever. 
Verse 16, let the name of that house be called Nauvoo House, and let it be a delightful habitation for man, and a resting place for the weary traveler, that he may contemplate the glory of Zion and the glory of this, the cornerstone thereof. See, now we're kind of coming full circle to what we started back in uh, verse 20-something. But notice what he's called it, a delightful habitation. That seems to be those who, a habitation is, is where you live more permanently. And Joseph Smith and his family, that was going to be a permanent habitation for them. But also a resting place for the weary traveler. Just come and sit a spell. Come, come rest your weary bones and let's have a conversation about celestial things. Let's, let me introduce you to the glory of Zion so you have something to contemplate. I do love the thought in 60 that that, that openness in the Nauvoo house, if we take this metaphorically, It's not just for people who are going to come and live here forever. It's also a hospitality for people who are just going to come and then go. To me, there's something about... We do such a good job of inviting people to come and move in with us. We don't do as good a job of, of welcoming those who just want to come and check things out. Elder Ballard gave a talk years ago about differentiating between curiosity and real interest. And do not confuse mere curiosity for real interest, or you'll end up bowling them over with all these things that they weren't interested in. I just had a couple questions I was curious about. I, I wish we could do a better job with visitors. Instead of treating them like friends in hopes that they move into our spiritual neighborhood, and as soon as we learn, wait a minute, you're just a weary traveler? You're not going to stay here? You're just going to leave? Well, then fine. Forget it. That's tragic. Because not only have we missed a chance to develop real lasting friendships, but it even has them call into question the way we were treating them at the beginning. If, it, if that friendship had strings attached. And without the strings, then there's no friendship. I'm so grateful to stay connected to friends of other faiths, people that, I, that we've tried to share the gospel with and they weren't interested in moving into the Nauvoo house, but man, if, there's, if you need a place to stay for a night, please, if you want to contemplate the glory of Zion for a while and then go on your merry way, it's totally fine with us. I would say, I would suggest that we ought to do better also with those who started in this habitation but at some point decided to leave it and, and pursue a, a journey to travel elsewhere. My prayer is those journeys will eventually come back home. I feel strongly about that in terms of those who wander and stray, that eventually they do come home. Their journey is a round trip instead of a one-way, a one-way ticket. But can we do a better job of making their stay here delightful? Can we make it less wearisome to them? And can we offer them help and hope even as they depart? I think that will be, it will make, make it far more likely that they'll, that they'll choose to come back when their, their travel really does weary them. I, I hope that makes sense. I, I love what Clayton Christensen said about why I believe and why I belong. 
And the believing is the gospel side. The belonging is the church side. And I just wish we were better at asking people, how much do you want to believe and how much do you want to belong? Wherever you happen to be in either one of those, we'll support you in that. Oh, you only want to believe to this point and no further? Then welcome. You only want to belong this much and not the rest? Welcome. I hope that our Nauvoo house, your house and mine, can be wonderful for those who, are, who dwell there, but also wonderful those who just pay us a visit and decide this isn't the place for me to stay. That's okay. Now verse 61, that he may receive also the counsel from those whom I have set to be as plants of renown and as watchmen upon her walls. Well, there's a lot in this revelation about listening to the voice of God and his servants. These plants of renown, these watchmen upon the wall, how are we doing at heeding the words of prophets? When it comes to building the Nauvoo Temple or the Nauvoo House, when it comes to building up the kingdom of God, when it comes to keeping God's commandments, are we receiving counsel from them? When it comes to building the Nauvoo House, we're going to need some direction and help from, from the prophet. 62, Behold, verily I say unto you, let my servant George Miller, we saw him earlier, he's going to be a bishop, so let him and my servant Lyman White, we saw him too, and my servant John Snyder and my servant Peter Haas, organize themselves and appoint one of them to be a president over their quorum for the purpose of building that house. So this is kind of that building committee we talked about earlier uh, that's going to construct the Nauvoo house. 63, they shall form a constitution whereby they may receive stock for the building of that house. I mean, it's going to cost money to build this place, okay? And so, yes, bring your gold and your silver. Bring your precious stones, your precious wood, or simply buy stock in the house. Now, the saints, and Joseph especially, have been burned by this kind of banking uh, philosophies that they had back in 1837 in Kirtland, where the Kirtland Safety Society Bank went up, uh, it, or collapsed into nothingness, due mostly to that panic of 1837 that leveled banks across the United States. Well, there's still a chance, though, that people can contribute to be able to construct the Nauvoo house, especially if it's going to be a, a boarding house. Well, then people, the weary traveler that's going to come and stay would, would pay to be able to have shelter. And so it's not like this is going to be a for-profit corporation, but hopefully it will at least pay itself uh, and, and we can also be, as we've seen so, throughout the Doctrine and Covenants, a way to consecrate any income, any surplus, back into the bishop's storehouse so that it becomes the common property of the whole church. So there's going to be a way that this building committee is going to get organized, have someone in charge, and that they can have a constitution. We're not just going willy-nilly and, I don't know, just give me your money and this, that, or the other. It's No, there's, there's an order to these houses of order, and you can buy stock. 64 begins to explain where, how this stock is going to work. They shall not receive less than $50 for a share of stock in that house, and they shall be permitted to receive $15,000 from any one man for stock in that house. Now, 65, they shall not be permitted to receive over $15,000 stock from any one man. And flip side, 66, they shall not be permitted to receive under $50 for a share of stock from any one man in that house. So 64, 5, 6, there's the parameters. On the low end, $50. On the high end, $15,000. The saints are learning from their mistakes in Kirtland and trying to do a better, more organized way of, of, of doing things here in Nauvoo. 
67. They shall not be permitted to receive any man as a stockholder in this house, except the same shall pay his stock into his hands at the time he receives stock. So this is, there's going to be no IOUs. This is cash on delivery. Uh, you want the stock, then you need to be able to pay for it right then, because we're not going to oh, extend ourselves so thin, spread ourselves so thin that, that it, we can lead to greater problems. And so just save your money. And when you are ready with uh, $50 to be able to buy that, that low level, one, one stock certificate in the Nauvoo house, then, then you're welcome to do so. 68, in proportion to the amount of stock he pays into their hands, he shall receive stock in that house. But if he pays nothing into their hands, he shall not receive any stock in that house. That seems pretty straightforward. You don't get stock if you're not paying for it, not buying it. There's a certain level of you need to have skin in the game. Uh, that what kind of, I mean, that was again so much of the problem on, on the Ohio to Missouri issue that they weren't consecrating enough in Ohio to then receive a stewardship in Missouri. People are just jumping the gun and trying to get to Zion as quickly as they can and not becoming Zion on the way. And so, nope, we're not, we're not gonna uh, fall down the same, the same pit now that we did back then. 69, if any pay stock into their hands, it shall be for stock in that house for himself, for his generation after him, from generation to generation, so long as he and his heirs shall hold that stock. And do not sell or convey the stock away out of their hands by their own free will and act. If you will, do my will, saith the Lord your God. So what's his will here? You buy the stock. There's minimums, there's maximums. You can't have too little or too much. Uh, it can, you have to have skin in the game and make the contribution. There's no IOUs. And, but it can be passed down from generation to generation. Again, this is private property, and it can be passed down as part of an inheritance and so on. That even, to me, has a beautiful uh, spiritual parallel also. That as my ancestors have shown their, their loyalty to the kingdom of God and made sacrifices, have put their skin in the game, so to speak, have, have, have given their all to build the kingdom of God, they do have stock in that kingdom. And that stock has been passed down to me. Uh, to me, it is worth so much spiritually. It's part of my divine inheritance. Now, 70, again, verily I say unto you, if my servant George Miller and my servant Lyman White and my servant John Snyder and my servant Peter Hawes, there's the same building committee, if they receive any stock into their hands in monies or in properties wherein they receive the real value of monies, so it can be given in, in kind as well, they shall not appropriate any portion of that stock to any other purpose only in that house. So honor the original intent. It was intended for this house. Honor that purpose. It wasn't given you to just do whatever you want with it. This is stock in the Nauvoo house. Keep it that way. 71, if they do appropriate any portion of that stock anywhere else, only in that house, without the consent of the stockholder, and do not repay fourfold for the stock which they appropriate anywhere else, only in that house, they shall be accursed and shall be moved out of their place, saith the Lord God, for I the Lord am God and cannot be mocked in any of these things. So 71 just strengthens the counsel in verse 70. That if you do, you have to have permission from the stockholder. If you're going to use their contribution for anything besides what they originally intended, and if you do, with their permission, restoring fourfold to what it is, I mean, the Lord is trying to keep things uh, in the Nauvoo house, in the Nauvoo temple, and there's so many things that need to go up in Nauvoo. We are, 
re, we're gathering the saints and starting from scratch. I mean, no wonder Nauvoo becomes as big as Chicago almost overnight. Uh, all hands on deck. There are so many building projects. There are so many things going on. But again, if we're prioritizing the, the house of God and a house for those who are coming to learn of him, then let's focus the efforts there and not dilute things. No, don't dilute the, the, the donations. 72, Verily I say unto you, let my servant Joseph pay stock into their hands for the building of that house, as seemeth him good. But my servant Joseph cannot pay over $15,000 in that house, nor under $50, neither can any other man, saith the Lord. So there's no separate set of rules for Joseph Smith to live by. He is treated just like everyone else, that this is how you gain stock in the Nauvoo house, and you can't get more or less than, no special treatment just because you're president of the church. That sounds good to me too. 73, and there are others also who wish to know my will concerning them, for they have asked it at my hands. Now we saw some of that early on in this revelation. Here's some counsel to Hiram, some counsel to George Miller, some counsel to John C. Bennett. There's, a, there's so many people, the saints are streaming into Nauvoo from everywhere. He told them, right, gather all my saints from afar, come. Well, they're asking as they come, what would you have me do, Joseph? And the answers are coming. So a lot of what we'll see in the remainder of section 124 is, is specific counsel to specific saints who've come to, the, to Joseph seeking the Lord's will. 74, you meet Vincent Knight. I say unto you concerning my servant Vincent Knight, if he will do my will, let him put stock into that house for himself and for his generation after him from generation to generation. So this is a worthy investment. Put your stock in the kingdom of God. Make a sacrifice. Make an investment in the Lord's, in the Lord's kingdom. 75, let him lift up his voice long and loud in the midst of the people to plead the cause of the poor and the needy. Let him not fail, neither let his heart faint, and I will accept of his offerings, for they shall not be unto me as the offerings of Cain, for he shall be mine, saith the Lord. Beautiful that he would put on the same level, I mean, to raise his voice long and loud suggests missionary work, proclaim the gospel. To do it in the midst of the people, maybe that's perfect the saints. Uh, to put stock in the house, was well, that going to be part of redeeming the dead? We're getting all the missions of the church here. But what's the fourth one that, we, that we've seemed to forget until President Monson said this is just as important as the other three? The poor and the needy. And so, Brother Knight, remember the poor and the needy. Plead their cause. Because there's a lot of weary travelers out there some of whom probably won't afford a night in the Nauvoo house. They need to be provided for as well. So don't fail, don't faint. And don't be like Cain. Now that seemed to be kind of out of the blue. His offerings won't be like the offerings of Cain. What? Now the key about Cain, and Joseph Smith taught it himself, is that Cain's offerings were not made in faith. There was no symbolism toward the atonement of Christ as he offered the first fruits of, of the field. No, they'd been taught by their parents that Christ would, would give his life, that he was the Lamb of God, prepared from before the foundation of the world, to lay down his life for his people. And so offering the firstling of our flock is what's in similitude of Jesus Christ. There is bloodshed, with, which looks forward to the, the shedding of the blood of Jesus. So, Vincent, in whatever sacrifices you make, make sure they are infused with faith. Don't be like Cain and just give stuff 
without really thinking of the who behind the what. Focus on, on the who. Focus on the Savior. 76, let his family rejoice and turn away their hearts from affliction. For I have chosen him and anointed him, and he shall be honored in the midst of his house. For I will forgive all his sins, saith the Lord. Amen. So there's the end of the little, what, three or four verses to Vincent Knight. I do love it, the, what he promises there. I'll forgive him. He'll be honored in the midst of his house. Help them, help your family rejoice. Help them turn away their hearts from affliction. I don't know enough about this branch of the Knight family to understand what, are they still lingering on the trials of Missouri, perhaps? Are they still licking their wounds and still so embittered or heart frustrated or broken even because of all that they suffered in Missouri, perhaps? But let them rejoice. You're in a better place now. And don't let your hard past hold your future hostage or even your pleasant present. Rejoice in it and turn your hearts away from affliction. Let your heart be comforted. Rejoice in a better day. I think there's some, something powerful in that phrase. To turn away your heart from affliction. Don't let your heart dwell on those hard things. Learn from them. Recognize the Lord's hand in getting you through them. But then move forward and rejoice. 77, the Lord then speaks to Hiram for just a quick verse. I say unto you, let my servant Hiram put stock into that house as seemeth him good for himself and his generation after him from generation to generation. So many of these uh, verses coming up to specific people are to encourage them. It's worth investing in the Nauvoo house. Well, please come and participate in this. Isaac Galland is another one who's invited to do so in verse 78. Let my servant Isaac Galland put stock into that house, for I, the Lord, love him for the work he hath done. Remember, in all these verses, think less about the specific individual, unless it's one of your ancestors, perhaps. But think, how might these words apply to me? Can I put stock in the Lord's kingdom? Can I invest in bringing to pass his work and his glory? And does the Lord love me for the work I have done? Whatever it might be, I've tried. Here are my offerings. Here are my acknowledgments. The Lord does love us for that. And God will forgive all his sins. He does that for us as well. Therefore, let him be remembered for an interest in that house from generation to generation. To be remembered as an interest. There's, it, it reminds me of what we saw about having a place and a name. Or a name and a standing in the house of God. Remember from section 109? That, that we're remembered there. That the Lord remembers our, our interest in his house. 79 is still for Isaac Galland. Let my servant Isaac Galland be appointed among you and be ordained by my servant William Marks and be blessed of him to go with my servant Hiram to accomplish the work that my servant Joseph shall point out to them and they shall be greatly blessed. Yes, there are still many missions to perform. So Isaac, join with Hiram and go wherever Joseph sends you. 80, let my servant William Marks pay stock into that house, as seemeth him good for himself and his generation from generation to generation. You see this, the repeated language? Let him pay stock into that house. Here's my invitation and, and, and my advice, my counsel to you. But do it as seemeth you good. I mean, from $50 to $15,000 is quite a, a broad spectrum. So don't run faster than you have strength. What is... 
your, the level of sacrifice you can contribute right now. And to be more than an absolute minimum, but less than some kind of overzealous, toxic perfectionism. Give God what seemeth you good under his direction. 81, let my servant Henry G. Sherwood pay stock into that house as seemeth him good for himself and his seed after him from generation to generation. We see these repeated phrases. 82, let my servant William Law pay stock into that house for himself and his seed after him from generation to generation. Now there's a little more for William Law here and we'll see even more for him later on in this revelation. But 83, if he will do my will, let him not take his family unto the eastern lands, even unto Kirtland. Nevertheless, I, the Lord, will build up Kirtland, but I, the Lord, have a scourge prepared for the inhabitants thereof. Interesting that Kirtland still has a future. Remember, there were a few people that were hanging on back in section 117, staying in Kirtland when it was time to go. All that's left are the apostates. Just it's time to come and gather with the rest of the saints here in Missouri, even though Missouri's a rough spot. Well, going back east to get to Illinois, we're actually closer to Kirtland than we used to be. Is there a chance to kind of, I don't know, resurrect the old... I mean, there's already a temple there. Or half the work's already done. Do we really want to start a new settlement here in Illinois? Well, yes, we do. And so there is still a role for Kirtland to play. I don't even know all that the Lord is hinting at in verse 83. But for now... There's a scourge prepared for the inhabitants. I believe that when the Kirtland stake was dedicated by, I think, President Benson, uh, he specifically mentioned this and said there is the, the scourge is lifted. Interesting bits of history. 84. With my servant, Almond Babbitt, there are many things with which I am not pleased. Ouch. Behold, he aspireth to establish his counsel instead of the counsel which I have ordained even that of the presidency of my church. And he setteth up a golden calf for the worship of my people. I warned you about what people might do with the gold and silver that they, that they plunder in the riches of Egypt. And there are those that simply want to do the Lord's will with it. They, these things are for tabernacle implements. There are others that end up building golden calves. And what leads them in that direction? They aspire to establish their council instead of the counsel of the Lord's anointed. So much of what we saw in the Liberty Jail revelations, so much of what we're seeing here, will we hearken to the voice of God or the voice of his servants? Do we see them as the same? And Alman Babbitt did not. Now, 85 broadens it to include all of us. Let no man go from this place who has come here essaying to keep my commandments. Now, I love verse 85. It's so little. But to think, essaying, by the way, means to try, to intend. I'm giving it my best shot. And what I love about 85 is, if you came here essaying to keep my commandments, even if you haven't pulled it off yet, if you're a weary traveler and you stopped in the town and you're contemplating the, the, the glories of, of Zion, and you came with a desire to keep my commandments, but you've been falling down on that from from New York to Pennsylvania to Ohio to Missouri to Illinois, and I just can't get it yet. This is me dealing with my imperfections and keep, and I keep slipping and falling into them. This is, I, I'm hoping to maintain worthiness even when I struggle with my lack of flawlessness, okay? But what I love about 85 is 
don't leave. Just because you haven't pulled it off yet, just because you haven't succeeded in keeping the commandments, if you came here with the intention of trying, then you're welcome to stay. Stay as long as you need to. My wife works in addiction recovery, and it's amazing to see those who, who try and fail and discharge and then end up coming back. And, and there's no shaming. There's no, what, you again? It's just, we're so glad to have you back because it's proof that you are still trying. You haven't yet succeeded, but you haven't given up on yourself. And we're never going to give up on you either. And I, I feel that from the Lord. Don't anyone feel like you have to leave just because you're failing? If you're essaying to keep the commandments, then you've got a room in the Nauvoo house with your name on it. Come and stay. 86. If they live here, let them live unto me. If they die, let them die unto me. For they shall rest from all their labors here and shall continue their works. It's the trajectory you set in this life that matters. Not the length of the life that you're following it. I mean, if you picture the trajectory that you're establishing, how much are you raising your sights to aim your life towards God? If you, if you live that way, if God allows you to, to walk that upward path for a long, long time, good for you. If, on the other hand, you are cut short and death comes quickly, don't worry about your elevation at the moment of your passing. Worry about your trajectory. It's not about living or dying. It's about doing either one in the Lord or unto the Lord. Because even if your elevation is low, if your trajectory was high, that's what's going to continue in the next life. You'll continue to progress. You will continue your works and they'll bring you to God. 87, therefore let my servant William, this is still William Law, put his trust in me. Cease to fear concerning his family because of the sickness of the land. If ye love me, keep my commandments, and the sickness of the land shall redound to your glory. I know there are mosquitoes everywhere, William. <laughs> I get it. I've been to Nauvoo too, and this was post-drain the swamp. They're still working on it. But there's all kinds of sickness of the land. Why do you think nobody wanted to move into a place called commerce? They would have loved the commerce, but there, there wasn't any of that either. It was a hard place to live. And William, bless his heart, concerned for his family. But can we be overly concerned to our family and worrying so much about safety in a physical way that we're not putting them into a place where they can gain the spiritual safety or spiritual strength that Zion has to offer them? William, if you love me, keep my commandments. And even if you get sick, it will redound to your glory. I will bring positive things even out of your affliction. I, I can bring beauty from ashes. Okay, I can bring glory from illness. Verse 88, let my servant William go and proclaim my everlasting gospel with a loud voice and with great joy. Yes, it's not just your volume, it's your attitude. Be joyful about this, as he shall be moved upon by my spirit. And again, just like the spirit gives both meekness and power, it also brings both the confidence that a loud voice entails and the joy that the gospel brings. Preach it unto the inhabitants of Warsaw, also unto the inhabitants of Carthage. Those are some rough places that we'll factor in shortly in our, in our history. Also unto the inhabitants of Burlington and also unto the inhabitants of Madison. Those are on the other side of the river. 
and await patiently and diligently for further instructions at my general conference, saith the Lord. That's good counsel for all of us from conference to conference. Here's what you should be doing. for the, Here's your marching orders for the next six months. You'll get more when we get to the next conference. 89. If he will do my will, let him from henceforth hearken to the counsel of my servant Joseph, and with his interest support the cause of the poor, and publish the new translation of my holy word unto the inhabitants of the earth. So there's some specific responsibility for him. Care for the poor. We've seen that several times already. Specifically, help him publish the Joseph Smith translation. That's something that the world needs. And an if in 89, if he'll do my will, if he really wants to obey, then hearken to the counsel of my servant Joseph. You want to do my will, whether by my own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. And William Law is one that would turn against Joseph Smith and has had his hand in the Nauvoo Expositor and eventually in the, in the death of Joseph Smith. He did not do Joseph's will, and in the process did not do the Lord's will either. We'll see more of William Law later. Verse 90, if he will do this, another if, I will bless him with a multiplicity of blessings, that he shall not be forsaken, nor his seed be found begging bread. There seems to be a constant concern on William's part for his family. They're going to get sick in 87. They're not going to have enough food in 90. It's okay. I'll provide for your family. Think about all these missionaries that are going off around the world, and I am taking care of their family, even in their absence. 91, again, verily I say unto you, let my servant William be appointed, ordained, and anointed as counselor unto my servant Joseph in the room of my servant Hiram, that my servant Hiram may take the office of priesthood and patriarch, which was appointed unto him by his father, by blessing and also by right. So here we see some dominoes falling. Joseph Smith Sr. has passed away. He is with God. He is with Abraham. But who's going to fill the role of patriarch to the church? Well, patriarch, there's fathers and sons. And so there's a, a patriarchal line of priesthood where it's going to be passed down father to son. Here the church patriarch is going to go down that Smith line. And Hiram Smith becomes the second patriarch of the church. And as he had been serving as a counselor in the First Presidency, with his new calling that opens a vacancy that then William Law will fill, and fill valiantly and faithfully for a time, and then he turns on Joseph, as again, a, a right-hand Judas, as Joseph frequently seemed to have. 92, that from henceforth he, Hiram, shall hold the keys of the patriarchal blessings upon the heads of all my people. Such an incredible gift God gives us in patriarchal blessings. 93, that whoever he blesses shall be blessed. Whoever he curses shall be cursed. That whatsoever he shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever he shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We usually use those, those phrases simply for the sealing power when it comes to priesthood ordinances. But for patriarchal blessings, that's amazing too. I've often wondered, what's the, what's the chicken and what's the egg when it comes to priesthood blessings? Is God initiating every conversation and telling the priesthood holder every word he should be saying? In which case, of course it's all going to come to pass. God is the one that inspired it from the start. Or, chicken and egg, are there times where the center of gravity, like we talked about last week, is more on the human side and we are simply trying the very best we can as even in our limited mortal imperfection, to speak for God. And does God honor 
the righteous desires of our heart. Is God saying, yeah, yeah, I can make that happen. Of course. Okay. And I get the sense of that in 93. You bind it, I'll, I'll bind it. You loose it, I'll loose it. That God honors the, the righteous intent of his servants. 94, from this time forth I appoint unto him, Hiram again, that he may be a prophet and a seer and a revelator unto my church, as well as my servant Joseph. You remember Nephi and Lehi, the brothers in the Book of Mormon? That Nephi gets all the press, but then it says about Lehi that he was not one whit behind his brother in terms of righteousness. I get the same sense with Joseph and Hiram. We, Joseph gets so much more press, although Hiram was not one whit behind him. And so prophet, seer, revelator, yeah, you are too. 95, he, Hiram, may act in concert also with my servant Joseph. And there was a, a concert with lots of harmony between these wonderful brothers. That he shall receive counsel from my servant Joseph, who shall show unto him the keys whereby he may ask and receive, and be crowned with the same blessing and glory and honor and priesthood and gifts of the priesthood that once were put upon him that was my servant Oliver Cowdery. Now it's interesting, Oliver was one who fell away during those hard days in Missouri, along with the other members of the, of the, the three witnesses, among with, along with four members of the Quorum of the Twelve. Those, as we saw in section 118 and 114, when, when vacancies appear, then God calls someone else to fill them. We've seen that repeatedly in the Doctrine and Covenants. None of us are irreplaceable in the kingdom of God. Well, Oliver was not irreplaceable. Even though once in a moment of pride, he said to Joseph, if I left the church, the church would fall apart without me. Well, there was some falling apart, but it was on Oliver's part, not on the church's. And Oliver eventually returned to full fellowship, realizing the error of his ways. But Hiram took Oliver's place as, as second elder. He was no longer in the first presidency, that presiding quorum of, of priesthood authority. But in terms of keys and blessings and glory and honor and gifts of the priesthood, Hiram did become second elder to Joseph's first elder. And it was Hiram that became the second witness with Joseph in Carthage. Many there have been who have said that if, Hiram, if, if Oliver Cowdery had not apostatized, it probably would have been him in Carthage. He would have had the honor, this is the way it's often phrased, he would have had the honor of martyrdom alongside Joseph. Instead, that honor went to Hiram because Oliver lost his place. In 96, that my servant Hiram may bear record of the things which I shall show unto him, that his name may be had in honorable remembrance from generation to generation forever and ever. And that has been the case for the last near 200 years, where his son, Joseph F. Smith, his grandson, Joseph Fielding Smith, uh, another descendant, Elder M. Russell Ballard. It's amazing that I don't, very seldom have we not had a descendant of Hiram Smith in the presiding quorums of the church. His name, his family name, is had in honorable remembrance and forever will be well deserved. Hiram was as good as they get. 97, let's get back to William Law then. Let my servant William Law also receive the keys by which he may ask and receive blessings. Let him be humble before me. That's going to be one of his weaknesses 
and be without guile. That's going to be something you're going to need to work on too. The Lord is pointing out weaknesses in hopes we can flip that coin and turn them into strengths. William would for a time, and then he would succumb to those weaknesses. He shall receive of my spirit, the Lord promises him, even the comforter, which shall manifest unto him the truth of all things and shall give him in the very hour what he shall say. 98, the blessings continue. These signs shall follow him. He shall heal the sick. He shall cast out devils, shall be delivered from those who would administer unto him deadly poison. In other words, you will receive the same promises that I gave to mine apostles of old. 99, he shall be led in paths where the poisonous serpent cannot lay hold upon his heel. He shall mount up in the imagination of his thoughts as on eagle's wings. I love that 99 introduces some, some figurative fulfillments of promises that we see elsewhere in scripture about the idea of uh, poisonous, the poison will not hurt you if it's administered to you. Well, even better, never have it administered to you. <laughs> even better than being saved from a poisonous snake, avoid them to begin with. And that's 99. He'll be led in paths where the poisonous serpent can't get you. And, and as we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation will ever be bigger than you can handle. At least that's how we paraphrase it. No, he says, God will, with the temptation, make a way for you to escape. That's the real promise. Not that you'll always be able to withstand temptation, but that you'll be warned before it gets too big for you to take the escape hatch. He will lead you in paths where the, the serpent cannot lay hold. That's the promise we need to hold on to. And, and pay attention to every warning. And, and the other one, mounting up as on eagles' wings. That's Isaiah's promise, right? Mount up with wings as eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not faint. Well, I love this, the, the figurative version of this, that you'll mount up in the imagination of your thoughts. That spiritually, mentally, emotionally, you will soar with the truths of the gospel being the wind beneath your wings. Though, oh, there are, there are thoughts to soar on in the gospel of Jesus Christ. No wonder weary travelers need a place to just come and sit while you contemplate them. Okay? There are eagles soaring all around Nauvoo. Verse 100. And what if I will that he should raise the dead? Let him not withhold his voice. It's funny that that would be the, the, I mean, of everything you saw in 98 and 99, to crescendo up to a climax in 100 of, of raising the dead, that's incredible. And yet the way the Lord uh, says it almost in passing, like, oh yeah, I mean, and if he wants, I mean, and what's the big deal? If, he, if I want him to raise the dead, then that's, that's an option too, okay? It's amazing how the Lord looks upon these kinds of miracles, like, oh yeah, what, yeah, yeah, I can do all of those things. Just trust me. 101, therefore, let my servant William cry aloud and spare not, with joy and rejoicing, with hosannas to him that sitteth upon the throne forever and ever, saith the Lord your God. It's the second time that William's been told to go out and share the gospel and specifically to do it with joy, to do it with rejoicing. Is there just, is, I don't know, is he, is he an anxious spirit, worried about health and food and providing for his family and... Oh, it's just, is he a worry wart? Is he, is he anxious about things to the point that it makes it hard to accept the Lord's will? Makes it hard to just trust that things are going to work out? 
makes it hard to share the gospel when there's too many things at home worth worrying about. Or even when he does, he, he never tells his face to cheer up and smile that these are things worth rejoicing over. Now, maybe there's a bit of William Law in a lot of us too. Now, 102, behold, I say unto you, I have a mission in store for my servant William and my servant Hiram and for them alone. Some missions are for people specifically. Let my servant Joseph tarry at home for he is needed. The remainder I will show unto you hereafter, even so, amen. Some are called to go, some are called to stay. Either way, you can make a difference wherever you happen to be. 103, again, verily I say unto you, if my servant Sidney, so now let's move on to him, another member of the first presidency, Sidney Rigdon, if he will serve me and be a counselor unto my servant Joseph, let him arise and come up and stand in the office of his calling and humble himself before me. Pride has always been a struggle for Sidney Rigdon. And especially some of the things that he went through. When Joseph was tarred and feathered in Ohio and Sidney Rigdon was dragged by the heels across the frozen ground and, and probably suffered some brain damage, uh, he took the sufferings in, in the prisons in Missouri harder than the rest, which again, why he would say, even Jesus didn't suffer as much as I did. Uh, he... He was not the same man. I mean, at one point, Joseph even wanted to release Sidney Rigdon from his calling in the first presidency so he could replace him with someone with some hardier hands to be able to lift up the hands of Joseph Smith. Uh, and yet it was Hiram Smith that intervened and just said, Joseph, give, give him a chance. Uh, okay, fine. And he did. But Sidney, if you really want to be a counselor, then come up and do it. I need you to be valiant and faithful here. 104, if he will offer unto me an acceptable offering and acknowledgments. Remember, that's what we saw in the very first verse. Joseph is doing that. Sidney, will you, will you offer all you can? But maybe even more importantly, will you acknowledge who God is compared to you? Will you acknowledge my hand? Will you acknowledge that I'm here to help? And remain with my people. We're going to see the importance of that in a moment. Behold, I, the Lord your God, will heal him that he shall be healed, and he shall lift up his voice again on the mountains and be a spokesman before my people. We need your voice, Sidney. You are so eloquent. You have such gifts when it comes to being a spokesman. That's why I called you in the first place. But you need to be healed. So come to me. Admit that you're in need of healing, and I'll be able to heal you. 105, let him come and locate his family in the neighborhood in which my servant Joseph resides. I love the thought of just living in the same neighborhood as God's servants. We might may not be on the same, under the same roof. I mean, best case scenario, that'd be awesome. That's Amulek. As soon as Alma moved in, then my whole house was blessed because I made room for the prophet. But... And whatever differences we have, if I can be in the prophet's neighborhood and just dwell near him, then I'll never drift too far from the path of God. The problem with Sidney is he didn't follow this instruction. By the time Joseph is killed in Carthage, Sidney Rignan is, I think it's in Pittsburgh. And he comes rushing back to Nauvoo to say, oh, no, I'm, I'm next in charge. I'll be the guardian of the church. No prophet can ever take the place of Joseph Smith, but I'll be the guardian. I was the, in the first presidency, after all. I was with him for 
the visions of section 76. I'm the great preacher of righteousness. I was the spokesman and I can still be that. Oh, Sydney, you didn't live up to this. You didn't stay when you were needed. In 106, in all his journeyings, let him lift up his voice as with the sound of a trump and warn the inhabitants of the earth to flee the wrath to come. Again, he needed to heed a little bit more of the warnings that he'd been given personally. 107, let him assist my servant Joseph and also let my servant William Law assist my servant Joseph. Those there, so there's the three in the first presidency in making a solemn proclamation unto the kings of the earth, even as I have before said unto you. So that's referring to what we talked about at the beginning of the lesson. First presidency, go for it. And sadly, so many other things on their plate, they never got to it. And that wasn't until 1845 they finally wrote it. 108, if my servant Sidney will do my will, let him not remove his family unto the eastern lands, but let him change their habitation, even as I have said. Can I be any more clear to you, Sidney? Don't move to Pittsburgh. You want to help the church, then stay and keep building it right here. 109, behold, it is not my will that he shall seek to find safety and refuge out of the city, which I have appointed unto you, even the city of Nauvoo. I mean, right there in the middle of downtown is going to be the spot for the temple. And if you want safety and refuge, that's where you find it. 110, verily I say unto you, even now, if he will hearken unto my voice, it shall be well with him. Even so, amen. But as we've seen, anytime there's an if, there's the possibility of not living up to it. 111, again, verily I say unto you, let my servant Amos Davies pay stock into the house of those whom I have appointed to build a house for boarding, even the Nauvoo house. And now we're going back to more people can contribute. Amos Davies, we'd love to have your help. 112, this let him do if he will have an interest. And let him hearken unto the counsel of my servant Joseph and labor with his own hands that he may obtain the confidence of men. That is one of the great ways to gain the confidence of those that you're called to lead is by serving them. You want to gain confidence from other people? Then labor with your might. Labor with your own hands. Be willing to lower yourself and others will end up exalting you. That's where confidence comes from. Respect. 113, when he shall prove himself faithful in all things that shall be entrusted unto his care, yea, even a few things, he shall be made ruler over many. Sound like the parable of the talents? You've done well with your five. Let me give you more. You've done well with your two. You didn't do anything with your one. Ah. Verse 114, let him therefore abase himself that he may be exalted. Even so, amen. Beautiful how that works. If you're willing to lower yourself, then God will raise you high. As opposed to you exalting yourself, then life will tend to have a way of bringing you to your knees. 115, again, verily I say unto you, if my servant Robert D. Foster will obey my voice, let him build a house for my servant Joseph, according to the contract which he has made with him, as the door shall be open to him from time to time. You've made a contract. Live up to it. In our case, you've made covenants. Will we live up to those? The door will be opened unto us from time to time to be able to do it. There'll be times when the door is closed and we are hindered. But anytime that door is open a crack, what will we do to prove to God how serious we are about keeping the covenants we have made with him? On 16, let him repent of all his folly and clothe himself with charity and cease to do evil and lay aside all his hard speeches. That's great counsel too. Are we sometimes guilty of foolishness? 
Are we sometimes not quite dressed with sufficient charity to cover the sins of those that are around us? Charity is a broad enough cloak that it can cover a multitude of sins. 117. Pay stock also into the hands of the quorum of the Nauvoo house for himself and for his generation after him from generation to generation. Interesting that as so many of these people were told right at the beginning, pay stock in the house. Robert Foster was told that, but not until he'd been given some other things first. To keep his covenant, to, to repent of his folly, to be more charitable. We're, we're going to see some hints of there's some preliminaries that go into putting stock into the kingdom of God and, and gaining an interest in God's work. Show that your interest is sincere by being worthy and prepared to make, to make those contributions or investments. In 118, hearken unto the counsel of my servants, Joseph and Hiram and William Law, and unto the authorities which I have called to lay the foundation of Zion, and it shall be well with him forever and ever. Even so, amen. Once again, I call to hearken to counsel. 119, again, verily I say unto you, let no man pay stock to the quorum of the Nauvoo house, unless he shall be a believer in the Book of Mormon, and the revelations I have given unto you, saith the Lord your God. That's one of my favorite prerequisites. We saw some hinted at for Robert Foster just a moment ago, but for anyone who's going to purchase stock in the Nauvoo house, do you have a testimony of the Book of Mormon? Do you have a testimony of the Doctrine and Covenants, the revelations I have given unto you? Because to me, if you're going to have stock in the kingdom of God, then you're, where your heart is, there will your treasure be, or vice versa. Where your treasure is, there your heart shall be also. Make sure they're in the same spot. Do I? It's hard for me to invest in something when my heart isn't really there. It's hard for me to want to build a house where people can contemplate the things of Zion when I'm a little iffy on my testimony of those things myself. I'm not sure if I'm going to stay. It's hard to convince people of a visit when your own habitation, I mean, do they want to come stay when you've got the, the realtor signs already on the, in the door? If, you know, yeah, I'm, it's not the neighborhood for me, but yeah, come and stay anytime you want. Hmm. How's our testimony of scripture? And is that evidence of our readiness to stake a claim in the kingdom of God? 120. For that which is more or less than this cometh of evil, and shall be attended with cursings and not blessings, saith the Lord your God, even so, amen. And there seems to be a Goldilocks zone in all of these things. You don't want more, you don't want less. You don't want hotter, you don't want colder. You need to prove these contraries, stay in the balance, and find that celestial center of the straight and narrow path. 121. Again, verily I say unto you, let the quorum of the Nauvoo house have a just recompense of wages, for all their labors which they do in building the Nauvoo house, and let their wages be as shall be agreed among themselves as pertaining to the price thereof. So there the laborer is worthy of his hire. If you've been working on the Nauvoo house, then you deserve to be paid for it. There's still private ownership through all of this. 122. Let every man who pays stock bear his proportion of their wages, if it must needs be. For their support, saith the Lord, otherwise their labor shall be accounted unto them for stock in that house. Even so, amen. 
So those of you who are buying stock, uh, that's to own it. Well, there still needs to be payment for the workers who are constructing it. So are, we, are you willing to chip in to pay for that? Otherwise, since they do deserve some kind of financial remuneration for what they're doing, then they will have, they'll be earning stock in the house themselves. Either way, we, we're or all in this thing together. Do you want to own the house and then pay them? Or do you want them to own part of the house with you since that's what they're being paid with? I hope that makes sense. 123, verily I say unto you, I now give unto you the officers belonging to my priesthood, that ye may hold the keys thereof, even the priesthood which is after the order of Melchizedek, which is after the order of mine only begotten son. I want to say the end of that verse carefully based on what we studied back in section 107 and having the reverence and respect for that fuller name of the priesthood. And with that verse, we see a shift from the, the temporal, buying stock in the Nauvoo house, to the spiritual of how do we lead quorums of the priesthood in the church, those who hold the keys thereof. 124, first, I give unto you Hiram Smith to be a patriarch unto you, to hold the sealing blessings of my church, even the Holy Spirit of promise, whereby ye are sealed up unto the day of redemption, that you may not fall, notwithstanding the hour of temptation that may come upon you. Interesting to read that verse in light of patriarchal blessings. The Holy Spirit of promise there? If I live into those conditional promises and counsel and warnings, I mean, we've seen so many of, like, many versions of that in section 124. But if you take your full patriarchal blessing, it can keep us from falling. It can help us withstand the hour of temptation when it comes upon us. That, that's what prepares us for the day of redemption. And that is such a specific, tailor-made set of instructions by someone who holds a key to do so. 125, I give unto you my servant Joseph to be a presiding elder over all my church, to be a translator, a revelator, a seer, and prophet. Here we are, 11 years after that April 6, 1830 organization of the church, where he is given five titles, prophet, seer, translator, apostle, and elder. And here you see a similar set, prophet, seer, and revelator. That's where we, we see the, the three that we always go together in our minds today. Translator is still there. Presiding elder is still there. 126, I give unto him for counselors my servant Sidney Rigdon and my servant William Law, that these may constitute a quorum and first presidency to receive the oracles for the whole church. I mean, go build the Nauvoo Temple so you can have a place for the oracles in that most holy place, your own conversations. But the oracles for the whole church, that's where the first presidency comes in. 127, I give unto you my servant Brigham Young to be a president over the Twelve Traveling Council. Thomas B. Marsh is since apostatized, and so Brigham Young is now next senior apostle. So we have the first presidency in 126, Quorum of the Twelve, or president of the Quorum of the Twelve in 127, the rest of the Quorum of the Twelve in 128 and 129, which twelve hold the keys to open up the authority of my kingdom upon the four corners of the earth, and after that to send my word to every creature. They are Heber C. Kimball, Parley P. Pratt, Orson Pratt, Orson Hyde, William Smith, John Taylor, John E. Page, Wilfred Woodruff, Willard Richards, George A. Smith. Now, some of those names we recognize from 
that commando mission across enemy lines to go back and start their missions from the temple site in Far West. But if you do the math there, there's only 10 names. Plus Brigham, there's 11. Well, I, th I thought this was the 12. Well, it is. Verse 130, David Patton I have taken unto myself. Behold, his priesthood no man taketh from him. But verily I say unto you, another may be appointed unto the same calling. You see, we've had people apostatize from the church and they need to be replaced. But we'd never had a martyr. And for an apostle to be killed, as Elder Patton was, what do we do there? Well, he will still maintain his, his priesthood. No one will take it from him. That office of, of apostleship is his in, in eternity. But he needs to be replaced in the quorum as well. And so a, a new precedent is set. Verse 131, again I say unto you, I give unto you a high council for the cornerstone of Zion. So, like we saw in section 102, a high council in the Kirtland stake. Well, now we need a high council in the Nauvoo stake. And it will consist in 132 of Samuel Bent, Henry G. Sherwood, George W. Harris, Charles C. Rich, Thomas Grover, Newell Knight. Oh, there's a family that we're familiar with. David Dort, Dunbar Wilson. Seymour Brunson, I have taken unto myself. So another casualty. No man taketh his priesthood, but another may be appointed unto the same priesthood in his stead. And, verily I say unto you, let my servant Aaron Johnson be ordained unto this calling in his stead. So there's the vacancy, and here's how it's filled. And to fill out the twelve, David Fulmer, Alpheus Cutler, and William Huntington. William Huntington would play some incredible parts in the history of the church moving forward. But there's the twelve names for the Nauvoo Stake High Council. Then 133, again I give unto you Don C. Smith to be a president over a quorum of high priests. Now who in the world is Don C. Smith? Well, we know him better as Don Carlos Smith. That's Joseph's little brother, who always, and I've never heard him referred to as Don Smith or Don C. Smith. It's always Don Carlos, which is a kid I always scratched my head about. I'm like, who's, who's the Latino that's in Joseph's family? This is awesome. Uh, Don Carlos. Uh, then I realized, oh, wait, my dad's name is Don. Yeah, that's okay. Don, Don Michael is my dad. Don Miguel. Here's Don, Don Carlos. Uh, beautiful name. I'm not totally sure where the Smiths got it. But he's called to be president over a quorum of high priests. Now, this one's interesting. We saw back in section 107 that there would be a deacon's quorum president, a teacher's quorum president, a priest's quorum president, who happens to be the bishop. And there would be an elder's quorum president. Well, this is the first time we're seeing a president over a quorum of high priests. Huh. Now, 134 tells us a little bit more. Which ordinance is instituted for the purpose of qualifying those who shall be appointed standing presidents or servants over different stakes scattered abroad? Ah, because guess who the president of the high priest quorum is in any stake? It's the stake president. Back in the day when we used to have elders quorums separate from high, priests, high priest groups, I was, when I was young, I wondered, that's weird. They're always called quorums, but the high priest is called a group. Why is that? Oh, it's because there is a high priest quorum, but it, it's a stake level quorum, with each individual ward just having a group of that stake quorum. And who's the president of the stake high priest quorum? It's the stake president himself. So Don Carlos Smith, president of the quorum of high priests, this is instituted for the purpose of qualifying those who preside over stakes scattered abroad. Okay, so we're seeing just like priest quorum president, oh, that's the bishop. High priest quorum president, oh, that's the state president. 
starting to make sense. 135, that they may travel also if they choose, but rather be ordained for standing presidents. This is the office of their calling, saith the Lord your God. You see, you have some that travel, some that stay. We saw that in missions earlier with William Marks and Hiram Smith. You go, Joseph Smith, I want you to stay. Uh, there's, a, there's a move to work forward elsewhere. There's also a strength. There's roots and branches, basically. Who's going to grow abroad and who's going to deepen roots here at home? 136, I give unto him, to President Smith, Amasa Lyman and Noah Packard for counselors, that they may preside over the quorum of high priests of my church, saith the Lord. So we get a full presidency there. 137, again I say unto you, I give unto you John A. Hicks, Samuel Williams, and Jesse Baker, which priesthood is to preside over the quorum of elders, which quorum is instituted for standing ministers. Nevertheless, they may travel, yet they are ordained to be standing ministers to my church, saith the Lord. So there's an elders quorum presidency. And they're supposed to stay put. I mean, yes, they can travel, but for the most part, you're responsible for the people here at home. 138, again, I give unto you Joseph Young, that's uh, Brigham's brother, Josiah Butterfield, Daniel Miles, Henry Harriman, Zara Pulsifer, Levi Hancock, James Foster, to preside over the Quorum of Seventies. So there's seven names listed there. Uh, Zara Pulsifer and Levi Hancock factor in bigger uh, in later periods of church history. Uh, but like we saw in section 107, there are quorums, plural, of the 70, and there is a presidency of seven presidents over them. We see numbers like three and seven and 12 often in, in symbolism in scripture. And so there's the seven names that would preside over the quorum of 70s. 139, which quorum is instituted for traveling elders to bear record of my name in all the world, wherever the traveling high council, mine apostles shall send them to prepare a way before my face. So there again, we have a division of labor, who's to stay at home and who's to go abroad. Elders, stay home. 70s, go travel and share the gospel. Uh, high counselors, stay in the stake. The quorum of the 12, go abroad and be special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world. 140, the difference between this quorum and the quorum of elders is that one is to travel continually. The other is to provide over the churches from time to time. The one has the responsibility of presiding from time to time, and the other has no responsibility of presiding, saith the Lord your God. So again, just the same division of labor of who's going to be here and who's going to be there. God wants to cover all those bases because he has children in both spots. Almost done. 141. Again, I say unto you, I give unto you Vincent Knight. We met him what feels like ages ago, the beginning of this revelation. Samuel H. Smith, there's Joseph's little brother, and Shadrach Roundy, who ends up being one of Joseph's bodyguards, if he will receive it to preside over the bishopric, a knowledge of said bishopric is given unto you in the book of Doctrine and Covenants. So there we have another bishopric called. 142, again I say unto you, Samuel Rolfe and his counselors for priests, and the president of the teachers and his counselors, and also the president of the deacons and his counselors, and also the president of the stake and his counselors. Like I've said at the beginning today, the church is beginning to grow in Nauvoo. And it's all hands on deck, and we're trying to organize everything. We've seen... Uh, the temple and the Nauvoo house, we're, we're building things left and right, we're trying to do finances here. And no wonder this is such a long revelation, okay? And in the midst of it all, we're also having all this ecclesiology and church uh, structure and who's going to fill all of these positions. My heart always goes, because I work at the Institute, I'm always working with young single adults, and my heart always goes out to YSA ward bishoprics at the beginning of every semester because there is such a turnover 
especially people who preside over wards that meet on campus. And all the move-ins and move-outs, and it's like those first two weeks, they are, I don't know if they ever go home. Uh, as it's like, okay, we have a brand new crop of members and we have to fill every position. And so let's meet everyone that we can and let's pray hard and let's start extending callings and get the work underway. And that's the sense I get here at the end of section 124. So many positions to be filled uh, and we're going through teacher, deacons and teachers and priests and elders and high priests and bishops and 70s and apostles and first presidency and patriarch and whew, this work is rolling forward at breakneck speed and we need all the help that we can get. Verse 143, the above offices I have given unto you and the keys thereof for helps and for governments, for the work of the ministry and the perfecting of my saints. And the commandment I give unto you, that you should fill all these offices and approve of those names which I have mentioned, or else disapprove of them at my general conference. Interesting what he says there in 144. Approve or disapprove. What do we do every time? All in favor, show by the uplifted hand. Any opposed, manifest by the same sign. From callings in, in branches and wards all the way up to general conferences and the general offices of the church. Even when you think of people like a William Law or a John C. Bennett, people that we met in this revelation that do not end up being faithful to the end, people whose discipleship can be iffy on occasion. It's interesting that 144 speaks of both approving and disapproving. It acknowledges the imperfection in each of us and the potential to listen to the, to the crowds on either mountaintop the blessings and the curses, and which one will we follow? Oh, I pray that we can always be approvable to God and to our fellow saints, rather than fall away into a point where we would be disapproved by either party. The revelation then ends in 145, and that you should prepare rooms for all these offices in my house when you build it unto my name, saith the Lord your God. Even so, amen rooms for all these offices. In fact, from what I understand of the ultimate temple that will someday be built in independence, it's more of a temple complex with all kinds of temples. And section 140, 124 verse 145 is almost a hint, a preview of coming attractions, offices or rooms for all those offices. In fact, temples for everyone. There is a place in God's kingdom for each one of us and a place that only you can fill. And so come running and fill it. Section 124, I apologize for the length. Uh, this is a long, long revelation because there's so much work that needs to be done in Nauvoo to think about the roles that each of us can and must fill in rolling the kingdom of God forward. There are proclamations yet to be made. There are missions yet to be performed. There are sustainings to be given and callings to magnify. There are houses to build. And whether you're most focused right now on the Nauvoo house that you happen to live in, I pray that we can remember that beautiful phrase in the Bible dictionary that I, that I mentioned earlier, that second only to the temple in terms of holiness, is your home. So keep an eye out for the holiness of your personal Nauvoo house. 
May we do our best to see that no unclean thing comes to pollute it. May we make sure that it is a healthful habitation. May we take time within the walls of our own home to contemplate the glories of Zion. And may we do all in our power to make our house a close approximation to the house of God. I am grateful for the temple. I pray that every time I leave, I may bring a cloud of its goodness and righteousness and glory back home with me so that my home can be a little closer to the heaven that God intends for it to be. Navu, the beautiful. Oh, how are your feet? How are mine? Are they standing upon the mountain and are we publishing peace so that beautiful Navu can be anywhere that we are? <laughs>